John Lebon here on the 12th of January 2018 and have I got a chat for you today. About a week ago on the 4th of January 2018 I had a chat with a guy called Vela Set and he's based in Sydney, Australia and we've been talking off the air now for a few weeks, probably a couple of months. And so about a week ago, we had a chat on the Fakeologist Discord server. And here are some of the topics or some of the questions that came up during that conversation. How would we know if God were already here among us? This technology that we're using, why is it that so few of us have spent any time looking into the history of the technology, despite the magical abilities that we have when we're using the technology? Who's really responsible for our situation as individuals and a group? Who is responsible for our lives today in this moment? Are cigarettes really bad for us? Is tobacco bad for us? And if it is, how come most of us can cite no actual evidence, no empirical data to support this claim? These are just some of the questions that came up in the chat. It was a fairly lengthy chat coming out at about three hours, I think, towards the end of the call, Kay Ham, who is a fakeologist regular, and somebody who has in the past accused me of being a paid shill, sent to destroy the truth movement as it's being built by Simon Shack at Clues Forum or something like this. So in the past, she said some uh, nasty things about me, but I think that's all in the past. And I think for the most part, We had a fair conversation while she was there. But for the first couple of hours, it is just myself and Vela Set. And I, for one, am hoping to hear a lot more from Vela Set going forward. So I'll leave it there. We'll jump straight into the call. And I'll be back after the call with some reflective thoughts. All right. So it is the 4th of January, 2018. And it's John LeBon here coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. It's about 9.20 p.m. local which means that today is Thursday, Thursday the 4th of January. That makes this my first broadcast since the year began. This is my first broadcast of 2018. So very exciting times. And to make things even more exciting is the fact I've got with me somebody who uh, I've been speaking with off the air for a few weeks now. And uh, some of you fakeologists are going to be familiar with him. I've got with me none other than Vela Say. So Vela Say, say hello to all of the fakeologists out there. And happy New Year's to you, my good man. Vela Say, how you going? I'm good, mate. I'm good. I uh, should have had a glass of water before we started, but that's okay. We'll, uh, I'm sure I'll warm up as we get through this. And uh, yeah, finally, after all of this talking off the air, my friend, finally, we are talking live on the air. Can you believe that? Can you show of it? Yeah, hopefully, mate. So there's, um, there's so many things that we could discuss, so many things. Off the top of your head, give us one or two topics that you expect we might be conversing about this evening. Um, I recently watched... Um, I was steered towards a video from um, a guy called Tom Foolery, who uh, I believe you're friends with. Seen you post some of uh, his stuff on your website, so I had a look at that and followed a link to uh, a longer video he had, and I was actually quite impressed by some of the stuff he's out there doing, you know, out on the streets. Yeah, I'm cool to have a bit of a chat about that. But um, I've also just come off taking the uh, the Christmas New Year period without alcohol, which is something that I mean, it's no, it's no 12 weeks like. But um, on your advice, I thought I'd give it a crack just to see what it was like since that's the real uh, social lubricant uh, everyone seems to be using around this time of the year. And uh, it went okay. It didn't, didn't bother me as much as I, as I thought it would. But um, 
by the 1st of January, uh, midnight, I, I cracked open a cold one, which was, uh, which was good. Mm, understandable. So we've got uh, my old buddy, Tom Fullery of the ISS. You've seen his video. We'll talk about that. And then uh, also alcohol. Yeah, this time of the year, it is quite eye-opening to try and be sober, isn't it? And uh, many of us, many, not maybe not all of us, but many of us, we realise that uh, yeah, without the without the Jesus juice, it's uh, difficult to <laughs> listen to the lemmings talk their utter nonsense. So that's a couple of topics. And uh, what I'd like to run past you is this idea that maybe uh, ancient history is not only fake, but so obviously fake that it is, it's more, it's more incredible to me that no one's worked this out than the fact that it's fake at this point. That's, that's what really gets me. That's what, that's what messes with my mind. It's like these stories about Herodotus and Herodotus and uh, pronounce these names however you like, all of these characters, Plato, Strabo, <laughs> the whole lot of them, mate, they're all obviously silly stories. I've got my head around that now. I've had time. But still, I look at how silly these stories are and I think there's no one. Has no one worked this out? This is... These are very obvious, these silly stories. I mean, they're, they're, to me, they're almost more obvious than 9-11. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, 9-11, yeah, okay, I, once, someone, once someone explains to you, okay, the planes can't fly at that speed at that altitude, so you look it up and you're like, oh, okay, that's actually a true fact. They can't fly at that speed at that altitude. And then you look at the, the footage with the nose going out the other side of the building. It's like, well, that's obviously ridiculous. And then you look at Harley Guy with his stupid stories and you realise, oh, okay, so this was all just a made-for-TV movie. It's like, okay, I get it, but... But in a way, in a way, it's still less silly than stories about ancient libraries that had all of the world's knowledge that were burnt down, causing a dark ages. You know, like 9-11 is almost, to me, less silly than stories of ancient history. But then I look at the disparity between how much time is spent talking about 9-11 being fake as opposed to all of ancient history. seems like it's a bit out of kilter. So that's what I'd like to talk about with you tonight. Are you up for that? Up for a discussion about ancient history? Yeah, definitely. Excellent. Um, well, tell us, you've, uh, you've looked at Tom Fullery, and uh, for context for people unaware, Tom Fullery of the ISS is a man maybe about the age of uh, 30, maybe his early 30s, I would guess, and he's based in Canada, and he started his YouTube channel a couple of years ago, I think, around about the time of the, uh, the flat earth thing taking over the internet. And for a while there, he seems to be very sympathetic to Flat Earth. But then he realized that all the Flat Earth leaders were charlatans and a lot of what they said didn't really accord with reality. So he, uh, he basically um, you know, made some videos mocking the Flat Earthers. Some of these videos mocking them were very successful. He put a lot of time into making this um, As the Potato Turns series. where he basically took, It was sensational. He took clips from the Flat Earthers and turned it into like a days of our lives, complete with music and voiceover. Very funny stuff. And then more recently, he's created his own little character called the Bylaw Man, where he goes out to uh, protest with, you know, hundreds of protesters, and he doesn't pick a side of the protest. He tells people that he's there to help the, uh, the New World Order. And I can't possibly do his work justice. But the point is that I interviewed him a, a month or so ago, and I released that uh, podcast on my channel. And, or on my website, 
And you're telling me that you've gone and looked at his uh, his one-hour video where he's in that protest. So tell us what you thought of all of that. Firstly, let me just say, even when you're just going over the ancient history stuff as a little uh, preview there, I was already ready to jump in on so many points because it brings uh, so much stuff up. So as long as you can rehash that succinctly, it'll uh, trigger all the things I was, I was ready to say. Um, yeah, I, I don't think your your um, your thumbnail image for that video really did it justice because I check in on your site uh, from time to time. So I really just go off the thumbnail for sort of what's going to interest me um, and take a look at. So I'd, I'd seen that picture there before but hadn't really looked at it. I made a, a snap judgment as to what it might be about and just brushed over it. But um, I heard you mention it uh, somewhere on a po- podcast, somewhere I'd heard, heard you mention it. So I went and checked it out and had a look. And, of course, your, um, your just a little a summary video, and I, I went and looked at his, uh, his actual hour-long video. And I thought it was brilliant. But firstly, it's, it's good on him for getting it out there on the streets and actually doing something. As, as you like to say, there's so many people that um, are just happy to sit around and, and chat about things and not actually do something about it. So I think it had a massive impact on the people that were there around him, but it's certainly, uh, for people watching it, it, it really conveys quite an interesting message. And um, just by, by how many people were, were so ignorant of the point he was trying to get across. There's so many things about that video. Like, I mean, um, we're, we're there. We've got a whole, whole group of people, probably thousands, attending the counterpart to neo, essentially neo-Nazis, and you don't really even see any neo-Nazis around. It's not like really a two-sided issue. It's, um, it's, it's all in people's heads, really. There are a lot of clever references he put in there, too. Like, his satire is really biting because he had a lot of great references that, uh, you know, even going like... like um, he was quoting, quoting um, laws and stuff, and using you know section 1984 as a little wink, wink. But people don't even that doesn't seem to register for most people. So, so what does that tell you about people's level of education? Um, it was a very, very clever thing to do, I thought. Yeah, there was one section where he walked up and he, he's dressed. For people who haven't seen his video, imagine a guy dressed up in a black outfit, kind of pretending to be like an authority figure. He's got the sunglasses on and he's walking around. And I think that, that's what was great about it. It was just silly enough. It wasn't, it wasn't too realistic. Like, I think it wasn't too silly or too realistic. It was just enough to sort of get people to stop and look, which I thought was, was pretty good. Yeah, so he's dressed up in his black outfit and he's walking around with, like, like his uh, foam sword and he just walk up to regular people and start asking them if they're complying with certain sections of the law. So, for instance... He went up to a bunch of parents and said, and he was doing this all in deadpan too. He was staying in character, which that alone takes a certain skill that most of us don't have. And he's walking up going, is this your child, sir? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, well, he needs to be on a leash. And the guy's like, why? And he's like, because of the Good Parenting Act 1984. And this guy's like, uh, uh, like the guy didn't know what to say, right? Then this woman, you know, and then he's, he goes, we'll make this one just a verbal warning this time, but next time make sure your kid's on a leash. And then a woman says, under whose authority? And he says, the authority. And she says, yeah, which authority? He goes, that authority. Yeah, whose authority? <laughs> yeah, whose authority? <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, the New World Order. You know what I mean? And they, they didn't seem to get it. And if, if you just watch the... Right in your face. Yeah, if you just watch my short little um, sort of brief summation of it, you're really missing out because the whole one hour is just full of these little clips that, but like I said, I can't do justice trying to repeat them here. If you watch them on camera, you can see these are interactions between a real person and who knows what's going on and regular people who have no idea what's going on. And he's staying in character doing this deadpan 
these people are staying in their characters, essentially. These are, these are normies who have no conception of what this guy's trying to say. Like, they're, they're completely lost. It makes for a... It's, it's almost like a social dynamic I can barely describe. You really have to watch the video. Uh, absolutely. And that, that's, that's the, the, one, the main thing I got from it. He's just... Uh, even though he's pointing out that, that uh, people are exactly where they need them to be and the, the um, divide and conquer thing is working perfectly, uh, they're not even aware of what that is. And uh, I particularly liked, there was one bit where they're outside what looked like a sort of government building, like a library or something, and there are a lot of um, younger people sitting around on the steps there and he just stopped and had a chat and people were so convinced of what they believed in that they were, you know, unquestionably on the side of what was right and, and unaware to the fact that maybe, you know, there was a reason that they needed to be pitted against someone else in the first place. Yeah, and his whole shtick is that he's not taking sides because generally humans fall down onto one of two sides of any topic. You know, these dialectics are put there for them intentionally. So what he was doing was going there. He wasn't a neo-Nazi sympathiser or a protester. He was just a bylaw man who was hoping to instigate problems. He's saying, I'm here to encourage people to argue with each other. It's part of the false dichotomy. It's part of the dialectic. So long as you guys are all arguing, I'm doing my job. So he was completely flipping the script. And I've seen this time and time again in the years that I've been doing this. If you do not pick a side, that alone is enough to short circuit most people. Most people are so simple that they see things in these simple binaries that if you don't tell them whose side, they would rather you be against them and them not know whose side you're really on. That's how simple the average human is today. They would rather you be against them so that they could be your enemy. They could say nasty things or mock you or deride you or whatever, just fall into their parrot, their trained parroted ways. They'd rather that than you clearly not be on their side or the other side. They hate that more than their enemies. The comfort in just being able to label someone you know, well, once we know, it's, it's as long as someone's identified themselves and made it clear, we don't have that question in our heads anymore. So it puts us at ease just to be able to put, stick someone in a box. And interestingly, so many people he approached or had come up to him straight away saw that there was something going on. Okay, he's a guy that's pretending to be a police officer. So straight away, the first question is sort of which, which side are you on? What, you, you're here to give a message, and what's the message? Which side does it belong to? And really, the police or the law, you know, or the authority, as you say, um, really are outside that. I mean, they're not on either side of the protest. They're, they're there to represent the authority. Yeah, so uh, so our friend uh, our friend Tom Fullery put together that video. Look, it's a one-hour video. I reckon that would probably take several hours to edit. You know? So between the time that he spent getting to the protest, talking to all the protesters, editing that video, you're talking about a guy who's putting 10 or 15 or maybe 20 hours of his life into producing producing laughter and, I would argue, some insight completely for free and that's what youtube offers us youtube and instagram and all these social media outlets for all of their problems you can actually use them in a positive way so that was the main thing that stood out to me from what tom fuller was doing was he was using this technology in a positive way to amuse himself and to amuse others and to make a point and uh, i would love to see more of that fellas say i would love to see more people using this technology in a in a positive way but how many people are really doing that? That's the question. How many people are really using this technology that has come from somewhere? I don't know where it's come from. They're using it in a truly positive way. I don't think it's that many people, man. Satire is such an effective way to get a message across too. I mean, um, 
when we're presented with ideas, it's it's often easy to either accept them and fold them in or reject them, but um, we don't really consider them for what they are. But, um, I mean, how many stand-up comedians are successful because they're very good at, um, you know, criticising authority and things like that? Like, I mean, it really gets people to question things and it's often easier to do it when, you, when you're um, in a comfortable setting and you're laughing and enjoying yourself is when you, you really open yourself up to those ideas. So... I would agree that quite a few hours of, of work uh, have gone into that. I need to be proud of. I mean, you've got a, an excellent finished product, so uh, you can definitely be proud of that. Yeah, we well, you know one of these things that I think about a lot is how, thanks to this technology now, our lives are becoming more and more documented. So not that I'm suggesting that this is the express purpose of all of this, but I think it will be the case that at some point in the future, there will be some kind of intelligence, whether it's a human intelligence or it is a quote-unquote artificial intelligence, can actually analyse people's lives, how much money they earned, where they spent their money, what they spent their time doing. It's all documented, you know what I mean? Like even something as simple as a video game, a lot of video games now tell you quite clearly how much time you've spent on the video game, right? So if, if you have uh, friends or children who play World of Warcraft, for instance, you can ask them, how much time have you spent on this character? And they should be able to tell you pretty quick because it's right there in the corner of their screen. If uh, if they don't know, or if they're playing a game that doesn't ex- explicitly tell them, that doesn't mean that it's not being recorded by the servers that they're playing on. So more and more of our lives is are actually being recorded. How we are using our lives as human beings, if you get 50 or 60 or 70 years, it actually is being recorded. And maybe at some time in the future, a lot of this stuff will be judged in a way, right? Because you think a lot of people will think about their lives like how would how would this life be judged if there was some external authority, some external force? How would my life be judged? Well, I think we're already in a time where our lives are being recorded so that they could be judged, couldn't they? And people like Tom Fullery are putting aside time to produce something which I think they could be proud of in 10 or 20 or 30 years, you know what I mean? It's like here is, here is some time that I had in a beautiful, um, you know, Canada summer I went to a protest, and rather than shouting at the other team or complaining about something, I made a funny video, you know, and I spent time uploading that. Like the, what I'm trying to suggest here is that we're getting a chance to, to document goodness or, uh, or our attempts at trying to, uh, to make people laugh or to make them think or whatever. If these are good things, well, we get a chance to document that now. And what we also get a chance to do is to document wasting our lives, wasting our lives playing video games, or complaining about things, or earning earning money, you know, for 40 hours a week and spending that money on shit, on poisons, it's all being documented, guys. All of it. All of this is being documented. All of it. Right? Already. So that little fear that people have that they're being judged, maybe you are. Maybe you are being judged. Maybe one of the reasons why this is all being documented now is so that at the end, someone can sit there with you and just say, right, Let's have a look at what you did with your life. Huh? All of this opportunity to do so much. And what do you do? You, you wasted your, your business hours, as they're called, uh, earning money that you then went and wasted on what? It says here, because we've got it all recorded. This is all through your FPOS here. It says here you spent, uh, well, looks like about 50, 60 bucks a week on alcohol. Okay, great. What else have we got here? Oh, heavily processed poisons. Great. All right, so you've got lots of... Uh, Heavily processed foods and other drinks. And okay, yep. And uh, what else? Oh, Netflix subscriptions. Oh, yeah, we can see that you were watching about 20 hours a week of Netflix for about five years of your life straight. 
Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. You just wasted your fucking life, mate. You wasted your life, didn't you? And it's all documented, right? Now, I'm not saying that that is what's going to happen, but I'm saying it could easily because the documentation is there now. It's all being documented, my friends, all of it, all of it, you know? So that little fear that people, most people I speak to deep down, they do have this little fear that they're being charged. Well, it's never going to be easy to judge it, my friends, because it's all being documented, all of it. What you're describing is not that dissimilar to some divine force either. I mean, you're really just using an analogy, like whether at the end of the day, um, a human here on Earth is gonna is gonna look through your your Facebook history and and judge you on that, or whether some divinity that's known you all your life and what you got up to. I mean, it's it's no different to the analogy of you know going to the pearly gates and being judged on what you spent your life doing. So really, the technology is just forging you know a new god for us to be um, judged by than than the traditional one that a lot of people were brought up brought up to believe in and, and thought they had to serve. Yeah, or maybe. Um Maybe not so much a, a new god. Maybe, uh, maybe when we think about omnipotence and omniscience, well, the technology that we're using, it, um, it does have too much power over our lives and it does seem to always be there, doesn't it? And, you know, even something as simple as walking to the shopping centre and back and your phone is tracking where you're walking through very simple triangulation. I mean, I say simple. I don't understand how this technology works, but the concept of triangulation is a simple concept, and we know our phones can do that. So, so long as you have any of these smart devices on you, even things as simple as where you're walking during the day or where you're going, where you're commuting, something knows. Something knows. Now, I'm not suggesting that there is... I'm definitely not suggesting there's a human who's paying attention to how I live my life, how you live your life, right? But what I'm suggesting is once it's documented, it's documented. These are ones and zeros, Yeah. Those ones and zeros could still be there in 50 years, 100 years. So as more and more data is being collected, more and more human lives are being documented. So that if there's any judgment, it's never been easy for that judgment to happen. Now, if, if you were a god, I know it's hard for us to imagine what we do if we were gods, right? But, but if you were a god, you know, it might be difficult sometimes trying to explain to people that you're there. Maybe sometimes you could be right there in front of people's faces and they still couldn't see it. I mean, can, any, can someone please explain to me how these computers work? Can someone explain to me how their mobile phones work? How come I can lift up a, a 50 or 100 gram device? I can press some buttons. Like, I could end this call with you right now, dude. I can give you a call on your phone right now, and your phone will start ringing. You can't explain to me how that happens. No one can. No one. None of us can. It is like magic. Because being humans, we just go along with whatever happens. Well, all the other humans are going along with it, so I'll just go along with it. We don't think about it. But we've got magic in, our, in the palm of our hands every day. Are you suggesting that the, this divinity is, is taking the form of the technology? Yeah, I mean, you, you could word it like that. You could word it like that. You, uh, you could also word it as whatever we think some all-powerful being might be. The technology already has all of those abilities that we would ascribe to that, to that being quite clearly. You know, so I think, I think some people probably have it in their heads that unless they see the, the clouds part and a man come down from the sky, that, you know, like, we'd know, we'd know if God was here. We'd know it, you know, like, it'd be obvious. And it's like, yeah, well, I can press a few buttons and talk to someone on the other side of the world, practically for free. Oh, no, that's, that's just technology, man. Oh, yeah, where'd that come from? Oh, it was just these smart dudes in um, lab coats in, um, in Japan somewhere, I guess. I think I've no idea. You know what I mean? I agree. I don't think, like, I mean, I'd, I'd consider myself an average human being, but I, I really don't... Um you subscribe to the idea that there's someone, you know, 10 times smarter than me who's able to figure out all this stuff 
know, it's, it's certainly something that I could learn as well if I wanted to. Do you think so? Do you think that you could learn how this technology works? I'm not saying I could learn how the technology works. I'm saying I could figure stuff out, like anyone could figure things out if they put their mind to it. There's no one who I, I think is, is just so much, so, so far beyond everyone else that they're able to, to design this technology. But you raise the point, I think it's pretty valid that I, there is theory, like I understand somewhat the theory behind how a computer works, but um, it's hard for me to make the leap that someone thought that up, how to put it into action, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we all like to think that we get the idea behind computers, right? But uh, the truth of the matter is that if we just had to start from scratch, no matter how many textbooks we were given, no matter how much money we were given, we would have no idea what we were doing. None. Zero. Right? Like for me, like let me, let me try and think through this, right? So I get the idea. If I've got different metals, I can arrange them to produce a, a current or to produce a charge, right? that if I create a circuit, I can create a flow, right? This is a, this is a simple battery. And then different types of metals put in a certain arrangement, they'll produce a stronger charge, yeah? So I could spend some time playing around with that. And then once I've got this um, charge flowing, I could find a way to, um, you know, put it through a, a filament with some gas, I suppose, to create a light. So, you know, I could um, create a light, and then if I wanted to, I could maybe communicate with you on the other side of the hill by flashing a light at certain speeds. You know, we could come up with a code, like a Morse code, right? So over time, I reckon I could work that bit out. And then, you know, if I, if I made enough of these and uh, I started coming up with, um, I suppose I, I had a way to create diodes, right? Because you need these diodes to to create microprocessors, essentially, right? Suppose mm, I came up with a way case. to create... Yeah, exactly. Suppose I came up with a way to... Um, to, to dope, it's called doping when you create these uh, these diodes or whatever. Suppose I came up with a way to do that. Uh, even that would be difficult, but at least I understand the theory behind that. Then I could uh, play around with these long enough to start coming up with more sophisticated um, images on screens, you know what I mean? Like my own little uh, prototype screen, eventually I could come up with that. And I could, I could keep going through this, right? But at the best I'd come up with rudimentary devices that still require me to sort of be there. And then you compare that to the fact that I'm talking to you right now in zero latency. Like, there's no line of sight between us. I have, I don't even know. I mean, I'm using Wi-Fi, I guess. So from my computer to the router, the router supposedly goes through the phone lines. Is it, is it all, is it all terrestrial phone lines between here and Sydney where you are, or uh, is some of that through like electromagnetic radiation through the sky or, or whatever? The truth is, man, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't think most people have any idea. They don't, and they don't need to know, of course, because they just need as to know. Long as, it works. as long as it works, exactly, exactly. It's just something that we take for granted. The, the phone lines from our uh, respective houses jump on a, a backbone and travel via via fibre optic, which is light. So you even get back to your little Morse code thing there. Yeah, yeah we're like, told I, that it's light. Like I we, we, use term, um, we use this term electromagnetic frequency, don't we? And it's like, well, our eyes can only detect a small amount of the electromagnetic frequency, you know, so your eyes can't detect the rest, but it's there, you can't see it. Like, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll take your word for that, but that the light that I see is the same, just a different frequency to the, to the way that uh, information is transmitted from my, from my phone to the cell tower. It's the same thing, it's just a different frequency. I just can't see it. They do the same thing. Someone told me they're the same thing, so they're the same thing. I understand your scepticism of that, but, I mean... 
it's a lot to keep throwing away. <laughs> it's a scary thought to keep throwing away all this understanding we have of things. Like, I mean, I've spent a career um, learning technology. Can figure out there's you know uh, fake things on the news and and that it's quite a scary thought to think maybe even a lot of this theory I've based my knowledge on might not be completely accurate as well. Oh, it's an interesting word, isn't it? Understanding. It's like we we have these understandings, we have these things that we accept. They're almost like a, above us, like an understanding. Like this thing is uh, it's above us. We understand it. And uh, I mean, I took chemistry and physics in high school and. You know, I'm not uh, I'm not a complete a complete um, noob to some of these concepts of of you know information technology, but I'm just being honest. I I really don't know how these things work. I really know so little of how these things work, and so I wouldn't sit here and say, oh well, if I wanted to understand it, I could. It's like, well, what, how did the, how the hell do I know that? I mean, how the hell do I know that if I just spent enough time, I could understand the the underlying technology that that we're using? Oh, well, there's the experts who understand it. So if the experts can understand it, if we had enough time, well, who are the experts? I've never met these people. I've never met these people. I pay my money for a laptop. I've got a laptop. I have no idea how many people are even involved in building it. I have no idea where the hell the thing comes from. Oh, China, Taiwan, Japan, Korea. Uh-huh. That's, is that all I've got? I've never been to these places. I certainly agree there. Um actually like because you can see the, the industrial scale that this stuff's produced on. Like it's, it's everywhere. Do, do we know in our real lives anyone who works designing motherboards for a computer and things like that? Like, it is just all um, stuff we get from overseas, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I said, I mean, I can, I can pull, you know, a part out of my computer and, and something stops functioning. So I can relate cause and effect and see that, okay, well, that part does this. It's, it's necessary to be there for that to happen. So the technology may well be doing what the theory says it's doing, but it's still the, the leap of design that I don't get. Who, who first just, like, you've got a pile of years of history, the Industrial Revolution and things like that, to this is a gradual evolution um, for us to get to where we are now with the technology. Judging from what you're saying, there's not a lot of strong evidence to support that anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, I, the, the fact of the matter is I don't know right now. It could well be, it could very well, in my opinion, it could very well be that uh, it's all gone more or less as we're told, you know, that people discovered, you know, basic what we call electromagnetic frequency and then eventually someone came along and discovered uh, semiconductors, which goes back to that thing I was talking earlier about diodes, and then, you know, someone discovered this and they were competing with this other company and, yeah, it could all be like that. It could all be like a natural, organic progression of technology, right? Even if that were the case, it would still be the fact of the matter that the vast majority of us, 99 point something, something, something percent of people are still completely ignorant as to how it all works. We're all still effectively taking this technology from whatever is above us. And it is magical technology. And we, and we just accept, well, we don't know where it came from. We don't know who's behind it. We'll just assume that the people who were behind it did it for money because, hey, that's what we live our lives for. We live our lives for money, so whoever came up with the technology must have been doing the same thing, and, uh, and that's it. That's, the, that's as far as most of us think about it. Which, so what I'm suggesting is that most of us are living in complete ignorance of this force, even though we use it every day. Complete ignorance. Happy ignorance. Blissful ignorance. Might not even be a bad thing that we do that. Maybe we're better off as the as the living underclass, not thinking too hard about these things.
But for some of us, there's a big desire to, to interpret the world and understand understand that stuff. I mean, I'd certainly like to know who's in charge. But um, it, it, what, what would you, you do? About, I was thinking about this the other day, man. What would you do, right? If you met, if you somehow met someone who you were convinced, well, this guy really is at the apex, right? This guy, whether it's ancient bloodlines or some kind of um, meritocracy for the inner party, George Orwell style, or however this guy came to be the number one, he's actually the number one. When the big meetings are called, he's the guy running the, the table, and you got to meet him and, and talk with him. I was thinking about this the other day. What the hell would you talk about with him? Like if he said, listen, dude, I want to talk, I'll, I'll chat with you for half an hour. I'm a very important man, but I like the cut of your jib. Let's have a coffee for half an hour. And he and he he got out his own organic coffee that they grow in some special field in Switzerland because he wouldn't be caught dead drinking the crap that we drink, right? So you sit down for half an hour and uh, and you have a chat. What the hell do you even? What would you even say to the guy? I wouldn't even know what to say to him. Ne- neither would I. I would uh, like. It, it, it's hard to imagine because you, you've got to be able to understand whether you're in the, the idea that this is some sort of benevolent um, thing or or if it's malevolent. And that's that's in here. Um, talking to someone who who not only not only is in charge but actually created uh, this realm, or or just someone who's taken advantage of controlling the realm uh, under no one's permission. All right. So for the sake of argument, he's not um, God incarnated. He's he's a, what what you and I would call a human, and we think of ourselves yep. as humans. He's one of those, and he seems to be subject to the same forces of aging or whatever. He's like the highest ranked human. So, um. If there is something above, he's he's the one at the top of the humans. If there is something above, yeah, I don't think I would know what to say. <laughs> I can I can see if it was some sort of divine force, I'd be I'd be like you know <laughs> this 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 video game is amazing sort of thing because sometimes I feel that I just think like I'm ignorant of the fact of where I am, what's going on. Like uh, once you start to peel away these layers of, of belief you've held onto all your life, you you start to um, but at the same time, there's times when I look and go, like, despite the fact I don't know all that stuff, it's pretty freaking amazing that I'm even able to be here, to think, to, to have this experience. Like, I mean, I could have not had it, but I'm here, I'm me. You know, like, um, I just smoked a joint and it's like, you know, the most amazing thing. Well, I'm here, I'm living, I'm interpreting time, whatever. But, you know, it is, it is pretty, pretty incredible. That oh, I guess that's even based off the, my foundational understanding of, of anything. So maybe it's not that amazing compared to other realms. Who knows? I'd be tempted to ask him, do you believe that Plato really existed? And I would imagine he'd say, of course not. I'd be like, good. Glad we got that one out of the way. So uh, so how did you get your position? Did you Were you born into it? Were you, were like, how, how did you get there? Did you have to sort of fight someone to the death? Did you have to prove yourself in you know ten or twenty or thirty years of uh, study in some kind of uh, elitist institution? How do, you, how do you get your spot? I figure I'm not going to get a chance. I figure I'm either not born into the right bloodline, or if it is a meritocracy, I'm probably starting too late. So I, I'm not asking you because I'm planning to take your uh, your your throne here. I'm just curious. How the hell did you get that spot at, at the numero uno of the humans? How did you get that? You know what I mean, I'd be interested to know that. I'd be interested to know. Have you actually met Bill Clinton or uh, George Bush? Like, do you actually meet the actors, or are they completely separate from you guys? You know what I mean, like, do you, do you have any say in the in the process for selecting the actors, or is that so far below your your remit that you don't even bother? You know what I mean? It's like they're all just they're all just peasants to you, no different to me. I'd be interested to know that. Like, what's the 
what's the relationship between the people who are really at the top and the actors that we're given? Like how? Because I think a lot of people imagine that those actors are still sort of high up in the in the chain. Whereas in my yeah. mind, in my, in my mind, it seems just as plausible that the people who are really in charge, you know, they, they see the actors as as yeah, almost way yeah. below them as you and me. Yeah. No, I, I certainly agree with that. I think like even even politicians, people like that they, they don't even necessarily need to be in on anything. They might just be people that have somehow, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are some that have a wider understanding of what's going on, but there, I'm sure there's plenty that have just uh, set out to maybe aware of the system that, you know, in a position like that, you can, uh, you know, help out your mates and, and earn more money in life and do well for yourself by, by pursuing that path. And that's what they're doing. They don't have to be, you know, um, they don't have to be aware of anything. But um, the fact that they're so well trained in, in what they do, like uh, mealy mouthing and, you know, all the, you know um, questions and that shows that they, they know how to play the game, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So many things that we don't know. I mean, h- how much do people like uh, George Bush, or in our case, you know, Malcolm Turnbull, or uh, Julia Gillard, or Kevin Rudd, how much, how much do they need to know? How much, how much would they even want to know? You know what I mean? Like, uh, at the end of the day, if you're getting paid half a million dollars, and you're you're the king or queen of your party, you've given twenty or thirty years of your life to, you've kissed a lot of ass along the way, you've had to go on TV, do interviews. You probably were successful at school and the university and then whichever law firm you practiced at or whichever investment bank you were at or uh, whichever government, um, you know, department that you were at. So you've, you've been successful, you've worked hard, you've, you've reached the apex of your little, your little world. You know, does Kevin Rudd or Julia Gillard or Malcolm Turnbull need to even know that, that, uh, that the moon landings were fakes, for instance? Do they even need to know that? They probably don't. They probably don't need to know that. I'm not saying that they don't know that. I'm just saying they don't even need to, really. In fact, in, in a way, they probably, in a way, they kind of need, you could argue they need to believe this stuff is real. Because if you were like, um, Orwell's 1984, the, the party is all about belief. You know what I mean? You only succeed in the party if you're good at just believing what the party believes. The better you are at accepting and, and propagating orthodoxy, doublethink, whatever it is that you have to say and believe to get, to get along, the better you are at that, the higher you rise. So, so it seems there's not, it seems nothing to say that they don't just buy into it, and they're they're just as you know, um, just as much as a believer as the average person on the street. They they're just in a higher position in in the hierarchy. That's all. Yeah. Yep. I'm very much open-minded to that possibility. I'm also they, they may believe they sit there with past laws. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm open-minded to the idea that they are just strong believers in whatever everyone believes. They have to be to sort of rise to the top of of the little the little political you know, circus that we're given. But I'm also open minds of the possibility that when the cameras are off, they're all sitting around laughing at uh, how foolish the lemmings are. You know what I mean? Like, come on, man, aluminium foil, you know, a sticky tape on the moon, on the moon rover, on the lunar module. I mean, I'm, I'm very open-minded to both of those explanations. You know, I don't really... But it can still be, you know, compartmentalisation. They, they can just be part of a, sub, a subculture, a sub-belief system where they, they sit... You're listening to another hour of Fakeologist Audio Chat on Fakeologist.com. Yeah, so, so where they sit behind closed doors and laugh and they think that they're on the inside track and they know that the lemmings are stupid and blah, 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 but they, they might not still understand the bigger picture. Like, um, it's, just a, it's just a sub-belief system they're given, thinking they know what's really going on 
people are generally stupid and you go out and you do a little press conference and you just, you know, mealy mouth your way through it and that's that's what you do. How would you cope if you uh, if you met, say, Malcolm Turnbull, our Prime Minister, or you met um, is it now Donald Trump, right? For argument's sake, this is just a hypothetical. But you met them and you felt you felt during that meeting they were being genuine and these topics came up like the moon landings and you left your meeting with them convinced they actually did believe. You walked away from meeting uh, Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull or uh, American President Donald Trump, right? Hypothetically, just as hypothetical. And after speaking with them, you felt convinced in your own mind, holy crap, this guy actually believes the moon landings are real. Like, how do you think you would cope with that? Because in a way, I like to imagine there are people who uh, they get all of this. They get that ancient history is fake. They get the moon landings are fake. They, to them, it's all a joke, the same way it is to me, right? Like, I like to imagine there are other people, even if I never get to meet them, that, uh, that they get all of this. In a way, it would almost be... I would almost leave that meeting with Turnbull going, holy shit, even he believes this crap? Wow, it re- this really is a lonely path, isn't it? You know? I'd almost rather, sort of, I'd almost rather him sort of lean over and go, JLB, come on, man. There's sticky tape on that bloody, on that bloody lunar module, right? Come on, mate. Come on, we all know. You know? I'd almost rather him do that. Then I'd be like, ah, good, sweet. They, they get it. You know what I mean? Even if I have to put on an act to get the, the lemmings votes, I get it. But, um, but if I found yeah, out, because you, crap, you, you've got an understanding there, and that's what makes you comfortable to have understanding rather than not knowing. Am, am I con- walking away from the meeting convinced because um, I really believe it, or because maybe he's just good at towing the party line and saying what he's got to say and, and believing what he's got to believe? Yeah, I mean, you, you could come away sort of doubting yourself, but I'm trying to sort of make the hypothetical as uh, tight as I can here. It's like, no, you walk away, you genuinely believe okay, yeah, that this yeah. dude believes it. That would I'd be comfortable with that. I'd think, okay, well, well, let's. I've got a deeper understanding of it now. The fact that the people who rise to these heights that uh, you know, conspiracy circles want to sit around and point their fingers at as if they're you know evil, um, uh, probably the most ignorant of all because they've just risen up through through merit, the party values. Well, uh, I do wonder. I wonder how many people, how many people know because in our corner, in our corner of the internet. I think a lot of people are still under this conception that there's thousands of people here, and there isn't, okay? The YouTube view counts are inflated up, not down, right? And those view counts themselves are still a very poor representation of who cares about this stuff, do you know what I mean? There's not that many people who know and who care, and then even among them, the majority still have a lot of blind spots, including myself. There's there's no doubt still stuff that I don't know, right? No doubt. But... Even some of the stuff that seems more simple to me now, like ancient history, ancient Greece, very clearly fake now to me. It's very, very fake. I think I've I've documented enough on my website now that I feel satisfied that I've probably spent more time looking into this than most people. And it's quite obviously fake, all of it. Plato, Strabo, the, it's just a joke, man. So it's like, but most people who are into the so-called uh, media fakery, I don't think most of them are really ready for, for what I call the history hoax. They're just not... not um, can't get their head around it, you know. So, so the number of people who who are genuinely thinking about these things and genuinely checking these things, from what I've observed personally, and this is just anecdotal experience, but I'm talking in the dozens. I'm talking in the dozens, and I've been here for what three, four years now. So, if if these people were out there, I'm more likely than than the average person to have uh, corresponded with them, or have noticed them, or have, have heard them in a podcast or whatever. But but uh, like I said, dozens is my honest 
the inference that I make, that is not many people, man. That is that is such a small number of people. It almost seems too hard to believe. Certainly on the cutting edge uh, where you are. But no, I'd, I'd agree. But it, it's a scary thing. Like we, we, all of these things, to peel away all these layers takes time. I mean, if you had have approached me a year ago when, um, you know, I really only had a, an understanding of um, baby hoaxes and the fact that, you know, uh, events are purported to be real and they never actually happened, and quite absurd for you to suggest that, uh, you know, maybe history is all made up. And even, you know, we sort of fall into this dialectic of, uh, okay, well, idea that we've been here and evolution's occurred over 90 million years is absurd. So it's it's very easy to fall into that trap of, oh, well, then uh, creationism may very well be real and we've been here 2,000 years since since Jesus' days, you know. And... Um, and that's just the dialectic. Like, I mean, if you're if you're looking into this stuff and you're not you're not able to find much evidence that we haven't existed uh, beyond 400 years, you've got to wonder, well, what were people doing? They had the Renaissance and all these great uh, things where where they were keeping history. Like, um, convenient if all that stuff just happened to not exist anymore. You know, <laughs> it's just a, a solve all little uh, a little bit of small print there. I mean, you say it takes time, and that is true. I mean, I've like I said, I've been here for three or four years, so I'm working my way through a lot of this stuff, sort of up, almost like up through that hoax hierarchy, you know. I mean, that that hierarchy, I almost put it together based on my experience. Like, I learned about this, so then it sort of opened my mind to the next thing, and so it's a little bit of a path. So it is true that it takes time, but I think we can also fall into this um, trap of believing, well, I've progressed over a year or two or four years. Look how far I feel like I've progressed. Other people will do the same thing. But if you pay attention to them, many of them haven't progressed anywhere at all, right? They might have learnt to regurgitate different talking points or ideas, but their thinking, the way that they approach data, information, the heuristics they use to approach different concepts or claims, actually hasn't developed at all. What they've effectively done is just go from parroting one thing to another. In fact, in many cases, there's no evidence that they're actually thinking at all. So a lot of these, you know, whether you call them alternative or conspiracy truth people, these acts people, in a lot of cases, if you actually sit there and study what they're saying and how they're saying it, there's actually no evidence that any real thought has gone into what they've said. They're simply parroting ideas. So, so the ideas that they parrot might have changed. But in terms of their own thinking, their own processing of the information, it hasn't developed at all. And when I started processing hoax as well. Well, maybe not thought process is a hoax, yeah, but a how many people who are here are truly thinking for themselves independently? Not trying to find the clearest layer to defend. Well, it's not even that they've got to. Like that's that's a different matter. I'm not saying that they've got to do that. I'm, I'm pointing out that they're not doing that. They're not capable. Maybe there's a lot of people who are here in this realm who are simply not capable of thinking for themselves independently of the crowd. And maybe that is a function of the human nature. Maybe it is actually a very abnormal thing for a human to truly think independently for itself. Like maybe that is a genuinely abnormal thing. It's like if you were watching a flock of birds flying along and all of a sudden one of them just, like you're, you're just sitting sort of, you know, marveling at this um, amazing phenomenon of a hundred of these birds just flying together, you know, peacefully in unison. And then one just sort of flies away and you think, when's he going to come back? And as you're watching them, that bird just never comes back. It never comes back, right? Like you're gonna, you're, it's very rare you're going to see that ever happen. Maybe that's how it is with humans. It's very, very rare for the human 
to truly go against the masses, right? Like we all we all like to think that we do. We all like to believe. Oh no, I I think for myself, and the groups who I hang out with, it's just a, it just so happens that they think the same way I do, and we all like to think that. But when you actually study what people say, you analyze the logic or lack thereof of what they're saying. You analyze their progress or lack thereof of their time in this scene. You see, hold on, most humans are not truly thinking for themselves. They're not really doing that at all. And maybe most of them are not capable. It is not human nature to do that. Something has to go wrong for you to end up truly thinking for yourself. Something has to go wrong for that to happen. Like that bird who flies away, that, the metaphorical bird who flies away from the flock, he's all on his own now, isn't he? So whatever the flock can do, he's not going to be doing now because he's, he's just flying off by himself. Very abnormal. Very abnormal. Whereas the humans who do not think for themselves can much more easily go along with the crowd, with the herd. Oh, yeah, of course, uh, there was a library 2,000 years ago that had all the world's knowledge and it was burnt down, which led to the Dark Ages. Oh, of course, I saw it, you know, Carl Sagan did an episode on Cosmos. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe that's a very natural thing for humans to be able to just go along with that kind of nonsense, which is why I'm the first person that I'm aware of to come along and go, well, that's a silly story. Let me look into it. Oh, yeah, what's, what's the evidence for that claim? I'll go and get the book. Okay, I've got the book and it doesn't say what he's saying that it says. What else, what's his other evidence? Okay, I'll go and get it. Okay, that piece of evidence comes from 50 years ago. So that's clearly not a, not a very reliable source for what happened 2,000 years ago. Is this, is this the sum total of what we've got, guys, for that story that everyone just believes? Is that really the sum total of what we've got? Because I don't care if 6 billion of you idiots believe that shit. That's ridiculous. I'm not going to believe it, right? Maybe something has to be abnormal with you to come to that, that sense of uh, self where it's like, okay, if all of you believe this utter nonsense, fine, believe it. But... I'm, I can't reduce myself to such silly beliefs. See you later. So would you say that um, if it's incapable, that there are people that are just, just do not have the ability? It, it's nothing that can ever be learned or can ever sway them unless uh, they're led in that direction by the herd? This is my suspicion. This is something that I'm coming to suspect is the case more and more, almost with every passing day is that assuming that a human can learn to think is like assuming that a cat can learn to play the piano. We might see videos of cats playing pianos. We, uh, we might have even known a, an animal that seems talented to do party tricks. So it's easy to imagine that this is uh, a normal part of their nature. But if we're being honest, the vast majority of the specimens that we've observed have not demonstrated this behaviour or this uh, ability. The logical inference is that this is not actually part of their nature. That's the position I find myself coming to very, very rapidly, very rapidly. Most people that have joined the act scene are really just falling into a, another subculture that suits them more, certainly not trying to figure out how to think, or, and then there's an underlying belief system they still hang on to. It's, it's great to see that, you know, Okay, 9-11 is fake. Uh, no one landed on the moon. And you can look at these things on the surface level of what we're given, um, you know, this, this sort of mainstream knowledge in life of the way the world is. So it's easy to peel away these little surface, uh, you know, bricks or whatever and go and throw them away. Another thing to question sort of what you think's right and wrong in the first place and why you think that's a bad thing. Like it's just another, another level of, um, you know, the realm sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the, I guess, pieces of evidence that have led me to 
this suspicion that thinking really does not come naturally to humans, that it's not part of their nature, is trying to get people to question where do their ideas of right and wrong come from, right? Let's, let's take a step back. Let's take a deep breath. Let's not try and find the cleverest way to argue for our pre-existing beliefs. Let's actually analyze what our beliefs are. What do we believe is right and wrong? Where do we believe it comes from? How much time have we spent thinking about it? It's becoming clear to me that even for people who seem fairly clever, you know, even, even relative to the, to the general act audience member, to get them to question where their right and wrong comes from, is, it is genuinely difficult for them. It's genuinely uncomfortable for them to question. It's like, no, I've got, I've got my idea of right and wrong, and that's it. You know what I mean? It, this idea of questioning it is too difficult. And I can understand that. I can fully understand that because when you start questioning right and wrong, you're truly questioning your, like your identity, your existence. These are, these are existential questions. This isn't just moral philosophy. This is, this is true existentialism, which is it's difficult for, for us. But for some people, it seems, in fact, I would say for almost everyone I've spoken to, it is that difficult that conversation shuts down, their mind shuts down, very quickly it devolves into, uh, you know, personal attacks or whatever. That, that's what I meant by saying that the thinking was kind of a hoax as well. It's, it's just, um, it's the metaphysical hoax. It's now, now we're not talking about a physical plane in a building or a, a physical tinfoil model on the moon. We're talking about stuff that's more inherent to your being and, and thought process um, to sort of peel away what you've been trained or, you know, primed with throughout your life. Yeah, I mean, I should be clear too that, that what I'm trying to suggest here isn't a criticism of, it's not a negative um, criticism of the, of the humans, of the people. If my suspicions are correct and the vast majority of them are truly incapable of, of thinking for themselves, that's not meant as a, uh, a negative criticism of humans. It's saying, well, this actually might be their nature. This, this might be not something that's not actually a bad thing in and of itself. It's no more bad than it is bad that the cat doesn't want to jump into the water or that the dog, you know, chases its own tail. It's not a bad thing. You can, you can sort of make fun of it from time to time, or you can sometimes uh, think it's a sad thing. Like you wish the dog was smarter, or you wish the cat was more you know, able just to, just to go with the flow and jump in the water. Who cares? Have fun. But ultimately, this is just its nature. It might well be the case that the humans, their nature is not to think. This is neither a good nor bad thing. This is just how it is. So once, once you've had time to fully process that, and I still haven't had time to fully process that. I mean, I'm still getting my head around this idea. Even though now it all makes so much sense, I'm still still coming to terms with it, I guess. But I think uh, once once I've had time to fully process it, it'll be a case of, all right, cool, this is just how it is. It's not, a, it's not something to complain about. It's not something to try and rail against to, to change. This is just how it is. And now that I do understand this, now that I understand this, this is bigger than me. Human nature is much bigger than I am. Once I fully understand this human nature, right now, how do I proceed with my life? What happens from here? Because I get to decide what I do with my life, but I don't get to decide what happens with the masses. The masses are the humans. They have their nature. This is how the world is. And for the most part, it's not really, it's not that bad. Um, you know, you've got the good and the bad and um, the other, I guess. So at the end of the day, um, everyone sort of goes to work and does their thing, sort of building uh, wherever it is humanity's going. Um, if they're happy to be doing that, um, yeah, why why mess with it? Yeah, exactly. Why mess with it? If if uh, the average human is happy in its routine, and and most of them are, they just do the same thing day after day, week after week, year after year. 
There are slight changes here and there, but for the most part, it's all the same thing. If they're happy enough doing that, and most of them don't seem any less happy than me, then what is the problem? Like that's what I'm trying to say. Maybe this is not a problem. Maybe, maybe a lot of of what a lot of us do here on this in this act realm on YouTube or fakeologist or whatever, where it's like, oh, why can't these people see? I wish these people could see. If I speak to them like this, then they'll get it. Blah blah blah. Maybe a lot of this is effectively trying to treat the symptoms when we haven't really identified the cause, right? And the cause is something that we can't change and is not even necessarily a problem in and of itself, you know? Spot on. Frustrating, though. Like you said, um, uh, when you gave the example of uh, Christmas lunch and hearing what all your, your normie family have been up to and, and finding it extremely boring, I mean... <laughs> That's the problem I have. Um, you're sort of always seeking for people that understand and can see your point of view because it can become frustrating unless you sort of learn to laugh at it and it was your own little private joke, knowing that uh, the emotional roller coaster you're taking on uh, on the nightly news is just is just a, a fictional story. Um, and yeah, yeah, it can be frustrating. I get what you mean too about your own little joke. It's like you've got to be in a good uh, mood, in a good frame of mind to be willing to get the joke by yourself. You know, it's it's more fun when other people get the joke, isn't it? You know, yeah. even if it's just and one of the people in the room. That's why people are even here on Fakeologist. We're, we're all sort of searching for, for some level of understanding and community because that's evidently it's human nature to seek that out um, no matter what you believe. Uh, and yeah, that's why people end up here. Completely, I completely agree. So, so if you are at a family Christmas or what have you, the only one who gets the joke, it can go from being funny to actually being saddening. It's like I wish I had someone to enjoy this with. If even just one person in the room could see why this is funny, then that'd make it okay. But if you are isolated, it can be uh, can be troubling. And so, like you said, we find ourselves heading to the Discord servers or whatever, and um, you know, trying to find that some kind of common bond. But once we understand that, we have to think to ourselves, okay, because I feel like I've found that common bond because this person says they know that 9-11 was an inside job or 9-11 was a made-for-TV movie or whatever whatever it is that we think we've got in common with the, them. The brakes go on. Yeah, like we think, we've got, yeah, we think we've got something in common with them, but are we willing to also inspect their reasoning for what they're saying or are we happy just to take it on face value that because what they're saying is similar to what we would say? that we think the same way. Because I think that is what I did for a long time on YouTube and at Fakeologist is people would say stuff that I agreed with. So rather than inspect their reasoning, their thinking, I would just take it on face value that, oh, we this person gets it so we can discuss other things. Mm. I think I probably spent a lot of time talking with people who never actually did get it to begin with. They might have said the right things, but they didn't actually get it. They hadn't thought through the consequences of what they were saying. They hadn't really thought through the logic. They were just... They just had similar rhetoric on particular topics. And I think this is now this is now born itself out, you know, with things like what I call the history hoax. It's like, well, the thinking that leads me to say that 9-11 was a made-for-TV movie, that same thinking that leads me to suspect that history is even silly. It's not even made-for-TV. It's just stories that some people write books about, but they don't even refer to the books. Like the books are just there to point out in case anyone asks questions. The stories are just completely made up, seemingly on the spot, right? Like from year to year. So how can people who claim to get that 9-11 was a made-for-TV movie, how can they not see how obviously fake ancient Greece is or ancient China? Right? And then I see, oh, well, 
It's not the thinking that led them to saying what they're saying about 9-11. They've simply liked somebody. They've listened to a YouTube show or a podcast. They've liked someone who had something to say, so they've started parroting it. Or they've found an online community where people felt this way, and so they fell in with that community. It's just another appeal to consensus. It's just another social dynamic like group psychology. It isn't actually thinking that's led them to that conclusion, right? So for a long time there, my mistake was confusing opinions with thinking. But now that I'm focusing on people's thinking, like if I listen to a podcast now, I can't help but think through the logic here. I'm like, did what that person just say, was that a logically consistent thing that they just said? Was there a premise to what they said? Was the conclusion based on the premises? Like this is happening now for me just naturally. And I'm finding myself, even with people I used to respect, going, holy crap, this person isn't actually speaking logically. This person is just speaking garbled words. You know, and and I've got no one to blame for that but myself, man, because you know, it was me who wanted to believe that I had something in common with these people. And in, in a way, you could say that I did, because, hey, we all know that 9-11 didn't happen what the TV said, so we've got something in common. But, but what brought me here and what I think has led me to where I am, it's not about just repeating beliefs. It's about the thinking process, trying to improve the thinking process. And I'm now convinced that most people in this scene are not even capable of thinking. I mean, let alone improving their thinking. It's not... You can't improve something that's not there. And if they're not showing any capacity for, for reflective thought on their own thinking, if they haven't shown any capacity for metacognition, thinking about thinking, then only an idiot, only a fool, only a naive clown like I was could possibly think that they're going to improve their thinking. You can't improve on nothing. And all those people have shown no evidence that they can even think. And that's not their fault. They're just humans. This is what humans are. Mm. Well... I wish you uh, could have come to my family Christmas so I did have someone to, uh, to share the joke with. But, um, sorry, you go. For the most part, I think we would agree on a fair bit of stuff. But there's still going to be things where, uh, my thinking is not in line with yours and that. And, I mean, so we can still only share the joke to some degree, much like people here might enjoy talking about 9-11. Um, that's just, uh, you know, they've just got to that stage of um, being able to share something, but perhaps becoming aware of the fact that there's only so much you share with these people and you're really on your, your own journey to fold things into your reality and um, take it based on your own system of um, worthy of, of folding into your reality or not. Yeah, I mean, each experience is going to be unique. But I think that when I'm in the company of people who I feel are thinking for themselves, have shown evidence of being able to say, well, here's what I used to believe and here's why I believed it. Here's where I was wrong. Here's my new take on it. When I'm in the company of those people, and also people who I have an experience of being able to have these conversations without it devolving into personal attacks, which is what most humans do. The moment that they're... Our beliefs are challenged. It becomes, well, how about you? How about you? Like, it's it's actually so simple. It's uh, To say that it's juvenile or childish is still understating, like, what's actually happening here. It's just a it's just a parrot. It's a parrot who, when its beliefs have been challenged, just falls straight back on, well, what about you, right? So when we're around people who aren't like that, who, who are able to discuss these things, it is such a pleasant experience. What I'm trying to explain, though, is that I think the majority of people in this scene aren't really capable. And the evidence speaks for itself. You know, if, if people are still talking about the same crap now they were three years ago, still can't just sit down and have a civil, calm discussion where people inspect each other's premises and their conclusions. And if they can't do that, if they haven't done that in two or three or four or five years or whatever, then logic says they're probably not going to do it. And then, then when you try and find an explanation, 
I think the explanation is because they're not, that's not what they do. That's not what humans do. It is a very abnormal human who does this. Abnormal. That's, that's why I like the word normies, right? The normies just go along. That's what normies do. Normies just go along. They're the normal ones. This is normal. It is normal to get into routines, to not really think for yourself, to just go through the motions, uh, watch TV where the TV tells you when to laugh. This is normal. This is normal. To have the conversation that you and I are having right now, abnormal, my friend. Abnormal. Something has happened in your life has gone, has led you down a different path to the, to the normal. In fact, I would suggest it's several things. It's, it's usually not just one thing. Several things have happened that have led you down. If you imagine like a decision tree, like imagine from the point yeah. at, the very, at the very bottom and then it works its way up, right? I, I'm putting to you that those of us who are having this kind of conversation that you're having, you, you and I are having right now, imagine that we're on the far right or the far left, either, either way that, that suits you, of that decision tree. There are several things that have had to happen to, to lead you to one extreme. Most people will have one or two things that might cause them to uh, think when they're younger. Not enough. They'll still end up with the flock. To end up where you're truly able to think for yourself, not just speak for yourself, but actually think for yourself, several things have to happen. Several things. And I think for each, for each All of us... All those diodes need to be in the right combination. Yeah, or in the wrong combination, as the case might be. I'd be interested to know what those things were. <laughs> Do you ever think about that? All the time. Yeah, me too. Uh, me I too. said the other day on the, on the podcast the other night on, on New Year's that, like, I mean, for me, but being able to see through the news and, and realise that um, luxury is, is performed all around us, that was an overnight thing for me um, when I took acid. It was just, dang, uh, you know, it's like being able to look at a reality TV show and then watch the news and go, wait a minute, these, these two things aren't that different. It's pretty much just a, a fictional construct we're being fed here see through that, that sort of led me on my little journey to start questioning things and uh, I sort of joined with different communities like we're talking about and started to fall into their belief systems and follow along that because it gives you, um, you know, new fodder to things to question and, and open your mind to. But uh, the next step that no one really wants to take you on is, is questioning a lot more of the fundamental stuff like critical thinking and that. But before, even before you did uh, ACID, I'm sure there are things that happen in your life that would have led you to think differently to uh, to the crowd. It would it wouldn't just be just dropping acid, would it? It's hard to to imagine what those things were because um, you know I'm living my life. I don't know uh, how anyone else is processing life and and what's going on in their heads. Um, I don't even know if people do other people actually walk around with their own voice in their head. You know. Is that how other people think? Like, I, I don't know. We can't, people could describe it to you, but you don't really know if that's what's what's happening the way it happens for you. It's like um, the analogy of people, um, colour, and then they, we, we both agree and we call it green, but uh, I have no idea that they're seeing the same colour the way I'm interpreting it. We just both know that that's called green and they could be seeing something completely different. Um, there'd be no way to check. Don't really yeah, know so, what's going so, through other people's heads. So even just that idea of do people think in their own minds? Like, do you hear a voice in your head, right? Like when you're not around other people and you're not distracting yourself with smartphones or tablets or whatever it is, it's just you. Just like, say you're walking to uh, to the park and uh, you're just by yourself. Do you sometimes have conversations with yourself in your own head where you can? Hear yourself thinking to yourself. Do you have this? 
does the average person have this? And you're quite right. I don't know. I don't know. Do you have it? Do you, do you find yourself yeah, being able to argue with yourself? Yeah, my mm. whole life I've, I've been having these conversations in my own head, right? Not every day, not all day, every day. But there'll be periods where I'll think, what am I doing? For instance, I might think, well, what am I doing today? I've got the day off today. So what am I doing? Maybe I should do this. Yeah, if you do that, da-da-da. I don't want to do that. How come? You know, like these are conversations that I can have in my head. Now, that's just an example that I've kind of uh, sort of made up on the spot, right? But that's the kind of that's – that's an example of what, of what might happen inside my own mind, right? And the voice is kind of how I imagine my voice to be. And obviously – our voices are different when we hear them sort of on um, on podcasts or whatever. It's what we imagine in our mind, but it's it's similar enough. Same, voice, yeah. um, same idiosyncrasies as well. So, for instance, I use the word man a lot in conversation like, what are you talking about, man? What are you talking about, right? I'll, I'll speak like that. That's how I'll be speaking in my mind, you know, so the same <laughs> idiosyncrasies. Yeah, right. Yeah. Now, I would like, I guess I would like to imagine that most of the people around us are similarly having these conversations. I mean, I'll give you another example too. Like suppose sometimes I'll think to myself, all right, why, why do you not want to do it? And be like, well, I don't really like this and blah, blah, blah. And I'll think to myself, why? All right, and then I'll think, I'll think through what had actually happened and I'll think, yeah, but can you see how that could have just been? And so a lot of the times I'll effectively be talking myself out of negative sentiments towards other people. It's like, right? it's like two personalities both sharing the same internal voice. So they can both argue against. It's like a right brain, left brain thing almost. It feels like, for me, there, there are two forces. Like I can say, I want to do this, then I'll have another voice. It's the same voice, but another sort of personality argue against it. It's like you've got this, there's always a counterpart um, to determine a decision. So you can always sort of internally assess both sides of the coin to figure out um, a decision. But I get what you mean. The voice I'm hearing, even when I'm not talking, the internal voice is, it's me, but it's not the, the auditory me. It's the, uh, the internal, the internal me. Well, the point I was making was yeah. that sometimes I'll find myself uh, talking myself out of negative sentiments towards uh, people or ideas or whatever. Like just thinking through, well, where did that, where did you get that idea from? Well, because what happened was, and I'll think, yeah, but did that actually, oh yeah, I guess not. Maybe, um, Maybe that was just in my head at the time. And so what I'm trying to say is that this internal dialogue will oftentimes be trying to make more sense of seemingly irrational emotions. Like I'll talk myself out of something. I'll go, like by the end of the internal dialogue, I'll think, see, that was silly, wasn't it? Why, why was I thinking that way? That was silly. And I'll be like, yeah, and then I feel better afterwards, right? I wonder how many of the people that we surround ourselves with are doing this, are actually talking themselves out of irrational beliefs. <laughs> Like, like maybe it is absolutely stupid of me, moronic of me, to think that I can logically persuade people out of irrational beliefs if they can't even logically persuade themselves out of their irrational beliefs. It was silly of me to be concerned that government agents were going to come and get me because uh, I've been doing this stuff for two years and it hasn't happened. So Perfect example. Perfect example. <laughs> It, it, I can't, it must admit, it took me a bit longer than, than yourself, maybe, just to, to uh, look at the evidence and go, really, apart from what I believe, nothing's really changed about my life. So do I really have anything to be scared of? Yeah, no, that's a perfect example, man. And you and I, like we've spoken off the air, we've spoken on, the, on our magical mobile phone devices. Even just when you first contacted me through this Discord thing and you're like, let's just talk on the phone, even me, after how long now? Two years, two and a half years of questioning this this Paige Hills idea, or this idea that we have anything to fear. 
even me, my first instinct was, I don't know this guy. Do I want to give him my phone number? Do you know what I mean? Like, even me. I mean, and you could you could try and justify that as, oh, yeah, well, this could just be a um, like a hater or a... You know, I mean, there are some people out there who don't like me because I upset them. So there's a, there's a certain pragmatic concern there, yeah? But But in the end, at the end of the day, nothing bad really has happened. And lots of people have my phone number. Lots of people have met me. So even just that, that slight sort of, well, I don't know this guy, I don't want to give him my number. Even that, it's, you could argue that's an irrational thing to, to do or, or whatever. But I gave her the number. We had a chat. We've been chatting now off the air for a couple of weeks, a couple of months now, probably. Time goes quick. And um, no problems whatsoever. And because of that, this has now further confirmed for me that there really is nothing to worry about. So it's, it's a step-by-step process. It didn't just suddenly... Uh, flip for me, oh, I believe in paid shills, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because I did, obviously, at the start. You know, I believe in paid shills, but now I don't believe in them. It was a gradual process. And, That's and what I meant by it. Just, it just took time looking at the fact that nothing had really changed. Anything that I thought was happening, any, any of the ways I was acting, uh, was purely all in my head. Just a, a little theory I'd come up with that I needed to be careful about something. Yeah, and so this um, this step-by-step process, it, it's, a, it's a lot of little steps of thinking... Well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was wrong. And so I think, because a lot of people confuse the words arrogance, you know, like arrogant, egotistical, confident, um, you know, cheeky, whatever. There are a lot of different words that we use. And sometimes we use the same words to describe different concepts or vice versa. So to me, there's a big difference between someone who is very cocky or confident in themselves because they've double-checked all of their premises, because they've double-checked their research, because they've spent hours and hours coming to their conclusions, there's a big difference between that person who is cocky or confident or arrogant and the person who refuses to double-check their own premises. Because to me, that second person is the egotistical one. Their ego is so big, it's such a part of their identity, they can't challenge their pre-existing beliefs, right? So they might not come across as arrogant or cocky or whatever, but to me, they're much, much, much worse. These are people who will not challenge their own pre-existing beliefs because to do that is to potentially harm their conception of self. Their identity is their beliefs. So any challenge of their beliefs is a challenge to their identity. That's, uh, that's not what they want at all. That to me is egotistical, right? Which is very different to the man who says, actually, I've realized how wrong I am so often. I've had to go back and double check all of my beliefs, all of my premises, and I've come to realize that most of what I believed was crap. And now I can confidently say that what I used to believe was crap, right? I think it's better to, if you have to choose one of the two, it'd be better to be cocky or, or arrogant or whatever because you realised how wrong you were and you've gone and double-checked than be the person who still believes the crap and refuses to double-check it. But to me, the second one is the egotistical one, not the first one. It's um, not what people usually assume. And it just it just made me think of what you're saying about sort of the macho chest beating and that in these subcultures of people uh, like you know devolving into in, into arguments. I forget what what term you used, but um, I think that's what it is. It's, it's lacking the ability to admit you're wrong. You're so attached to this idea of your ego and your knowledge that um, you, you end up chest beating and and the, the conversations and and stuff on here just uh, devolves very quickly because people aren't prepared to admit they were wrong or, or question it and uh, perhaps look at why they do believe something and, and assess the evidence, we're still busy protecting protecting that ego um, just because it's about 9-11 or, or these smaller, smaller peripheral things. 
Yeah, and again, I would suggest that this is the natural human condition is to be incredibly egotistical, incredibly egotistical. Like ego is in, because we're using a word that might mean different things to different people. I mean is in somebody who conceives of themselves as being so important that their subjective truth is somehow the same as the objective truth, that they see themselves, their identity, as being their knowledge. Like their knowledge is so good that it forms their identity. Like their, their ego is this huge sense of self. Whereas with me, I fully understand that the inferences I come to are just my inferences. That's all. So if you want to sit down with me and look at my premises and my conclusion and inspect the logic, this is no problem. Because the worst that you can do is show me how I'm in error. Right, I'm in error. That's, that's what happens. You know, I can fix it. Not a big deal. Whereas for the average human, you know, if you're inspecting their premises and their conclusion, you're inspecting the truth. This is the truth. I don't believe this for no reason. These, these are smart people. These are smart people who did 12 years of school, 13 years of school, several years of university, whatever. How, how, what are you suggesting they might be wrong about this stuff? You know what I mean? They're smart they they work very hard to come to those conclusions. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's, it's 100% not their fault. It's just as I look at the, the younger version of me, and he had, I mean, I'm, I'm sure some of my beliefs to this day are still very retarded. And used to, I'll look back at this conversation, I'll listen back to this and go, he was on the right track, but he was very wrong, blah, 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 right? But I look back at some of the things I used to believe, even just a few years ago, which to me are just completely retarded beliefs. I don't sit here and, and judge that version of me for that. I'll, I'll mock that version of me and call him retarded or call people who are still like him to this day retarded. Sure, but it's not a form of judgment that they're bad people. They're, they're merely products of human nature. And the environment, and the environment that we're in, the school system, is designed to churn out egotistical people. I pass school, I must be smart. I got the answers at the back of the book, I must be smart. When I finished year 11 or year 12 or senior high school or whatever they call it in different parts of the world, when I did that, my, my exams got sent off to some central uh, administration bureau and they said I got the answers right, right? So I must be smart. So the whole school system seems to be built up, among other things, intentionally to build up this ego that stops people from checking their own premises. Like, Absolutely. I've never, never thought people, of it that way. These people who can't question their own beliefs, well, nor should they be able to, right? 12 or 13 years of school should churn out a human who cannot question itself, really. Something has to go wrong for them to come out of that school system, this conveyor belt system, and still be able to think, maybe, I, maybe it was all crap. Maybe I'm not that smart. Maybe, maybe it doesn't matter how strongly I was convinced that Plato was real, that I even could memorize some of his so-called quotes. Maybe that was all make-believe. It takes something, something has to go seriously wrong to come out and be able to question this stuff. I'll have to keep pondering that one. <laughs> It'd be very interesting to know what it was, because I don't think I've lived a particularly abnormal life. Uh, some step along the way, or several steps, I remember the girl who lived next door when I was, say, five through... We moved when I was in grade uh, grade three, so what's that, eight? So from the age of five through eight, there was uh, next-door neighbours to us, and they had uh, two children, a boy and a girl, who were both several years older than me. So the boy, he was he was cool, you know what I mean? Because like, when you were five, six, seven, a 12 or 13-year-old kid is a cool kid, right? Especially if you get to kick the footy with him or whatever. So you look up to him. And then the girl, she was uh, like, you know, a lot of young girls, back then, I'm not sure about today, that's how messed up things are, but back then, 
like young girls would want to sort of be like motherly figures to younger children. I'm sure it still happens mm-hmm. to some to some extent to this day. So um, so I, she also spent some time with us as well. And I, I remember being at the park with her one day and she was explaining to me this concept of what it is to be an individual, right? And and I remember that, like I'm, I'm struggling to pronounce this word individual, and she's explaining an individual is someone who is happy to not be like the rest, right? Now, those aren't her exact words. I don't remember her exact words, but she was explaining to me this concept of, and she was speaking of this in a, in a positive way because she was probably like among the teenagers in that street or the, the kids of her age in that street. She was probably one of the more individual ones. Do you know what I mean? And, how old was she? Uh, well, I can't remember exactly how old she was, but I would have been, when, whenever this conversation in the park took place, I would have been somewhere between five and eight, right? Because those are the, the ages that we lived in that particular uh, house. Yeah. And so she would have been a few years older than me at the time. And, um, yeah, she probably would have been a, a, a very young age. age to have that kind of um, you know, view on things, to be, to be talking about something like that. Yeah, yeah. And so imagine how fortunate I was, uh, me looking back now and thinking to myself, somebody conveyed the concept of me, uh, to me, someone explained this concept of being different from the group, right? Now, all of us at some point in our lives, whether it was from osmosis, from overhearing other people's conversations, or from someone telling us directly, we've all been exposed at some point in our lives to this concept that it is okay or even a positive thing to be different to the rest, right? I was lucky that it was someone who I looked up to. And, you know, again, when you're that age, someone who's just a few years older than you is still like a cool person. So someone who I respected and who seemed intelligent to me was saying to me, it's okay to be different to the group, right? Now, how much, when we look at that decision tree that we were looking at earlier, how much did that one particular conversation with this one girl have in my whole life? It might have only been like like a one degree tilt towards the extreme, right? But of course, on the decision tree, each tilt in one direction opens up the next opportunities, doesn't it? Right? So, so it might have only been a slight difference then, but who knows what later conversations I've had or experiences I've had that I was more open to because when I was younger, someone who I respected suggested to me that it was totally okay to not be like the, the cool kids or whatever. Right? And so this is what I'm suggesting, that each of us who are willing and are able. Because it's not just like, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got opinions that are controversial. At Christmas, I, I really upset everyone by saying uh, Sydney siege didn't happen. No, that's not what I'm talking about. It's about thinking, like being able to think. Like I'm, I'm suggesting that human nature is to not think for ourselves. So those of us who, who can still do it, even at a, into our 20s or 30s or beyond, who are actually capable of doing it, not just believing that we can, but are actually capable of thinking for ourselves, being different, I'm suggesting that there are probably many events in all of our lives that have uh, have led to us arriving at this situation. And and that's another thing too, is a lot of people I speak to, and this, this goes back even before I started working at the baby hoaxes, I'd already caught on to this idea that a lot of people don't spend much time truly reflecting on their own lives and how they became what they are, right? You might, you might meet some people who are very... Um, like nostalgic for the past or they, they constantly let their minds wander back to some, some time in the past almost to harm themselves, like in, in the present, you know what I mean? Like they, they've got a weird um, relationship with the past. This is normal. But in terms of just sitting there objectively and considering how did I become who I am, I'm very convinced and I have been for a long time, most humans don't do that. Most humans don't actually think back to their own memories and wonder how did I end up as I am. 
And I think to a lot of people, it's painful to do it. It's painful. They've got a lot of uh, negative feelings bottled up from the past. So it's, it's painful. But then there are other people where it's not so much that. It's more just, oh, why do I do that, man? You know, it's uh, the footy's on. The fucking, I've got to go to work, man. The radio's on. There's good tunes like that. It's just not, it's just not part of their nature to, to truly reflect. And so without this reflection on how they came to be who they are, they don't even really know who they are. They don't, there really isn't a them. You know, that, and that's why their beliefs are so important. That's why their identity is composed of beliefs about how man went to the moon or, yes, Plato was real. They couldn't all be wrong about that or whatever. Their beliefs are who they are because they don't really have a self outside of that. They've got no narrative of their lives that they've really considered. It's just, I'm here, I believe this, uh, that, and, and so my beliefs become me. And, of course, they're oblivious to all of this. They're completely oblivious in most cases. I would say most people don't go back and look through their life because subconsciously it's going. they know it's going to be painful. I mean, um, everyone holds themselves up to a yardstick of what it is to be successful. And um, for most people, they're not that. So I can look at the decisions you made in your life because there might have been so much that you, uh, you had hoped for yourself and haven't achieved or you're, you're all too aware of, of the decisions you make aren't really uh, in your best interest um, to get you to where you want to be. Uh, so, so where you want to be is just a, a dream that you can get around to eventually. But uh, the clock's ticking. And you know, like I say, I think it's subconscious, but most people know not to, not to really assess all the decisions they've made on that tree. They've probably yeah, no, made the wrong ones and it's painful to, to look at. Yeah, and I don't, I, you're 100% right about that, and I don't blame people for that at all, because it is painful. Like, just learning about certain things, even in the last few months for me, I've learned certain things about human nature, where it, the natural response is to think back through our past experiences, right? Almost like that cartoonish sort of, you know, life flashing before your eyes, but not because you're about to die, just because it's like, you know, you, you discover something. Let me give you a practical example. Suppose you discover that there is a certain difference between men and women, and you already knew that men and women were different, but there was one part of, of the makeup of, of men and women that you didn't realize was different until someone pointed it out, and you looked at the logic, and you thought about it, and you're like, actually, that, that seems plausible, and then you look at the, experience, the, the, the examples that they give or whatever, and you think, okay, yeah, I'm with you. And you think, all right, let me go back through my experiences and then, you know, like flip, 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 flip. Your mind's going through and you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> this shit. Fuck, man. Fuck. Now it all makes sense, right? Because you're thinking, oh, that, that experience that I had that seemed uh, so lovely at the time, now I understand why that person was interested in me, right? Or now I understand why it seemed uh, so lovely at the time or whatever, right? But then when you have this understanding of what leads to the certain behaviours or whatever, now it's like it takes away the romanticism of it, right? It takes away, like, you know, romance. Romance isn't just, uh, oh, two people trying to court each other. Like romance is in we have a romantic idea of why certain things happen, yeah? And when you start this to This fortuitous learn, sort of mysticism that uh, is unfolding just for us. Yeah, yeah, like romance is like a fortuitous mystic uh, view of the world, like, uh, oh, it's uh, these forces that we can't see and uh, you know, aren't we so lucky that blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that's a good description of it. So when you learn Cupid's some of these, when you learn some of these colder, harder truths, you can find yourself going back through your own past and thinking, oh, it actually wasn't as um, as romantic as I thought. And again, I'm using this word romantic in a in a sense that's not directly related to 
you know, the courtship process. I just mean in general, we can have very romantic uh, memories of the past, but then when we come to understandings about human nature in the present, that can negatively affect our memories of the past. So it is painful. So who the hell wants to accept this truth, no matter how obvious the truth is, if it takes away from our past? Who wants to do that? It almost, it, it almost would require someone who was either numb to the pain or who maybe enjoyed, maybe enjoyed going back to their own past and sort of messing shit up or whatever. I mean, come to your own explanations for it. But it would almost take someone who is, who is not averse to pain the way that the average person is psychological pain. The average person, the psychological pain involved in learning these truths is far too much to be worth it. I mean, what, what, what's the reward from all of this? Do you know what I mean? So un- unless the pain doesn't affect you the way it affects other people, or there's some great reward for putting yourself through the pain, why would the average person learn things now that can uh, harm their memories of the past? Why would they do that? It's crazy, man. It's abnormal is what it is. It's abnormal. So some sort of mental sadist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To an extent, I think that might be one explanation for it. Like right, the two, the two obvious, sorry, man, the, the two obvious explanations are either it is just as painful for you, but you are a mental sadist, to use your explanation, or for some reason the pain just doesn't affect you the way it affects others. It's like you're sort of psychologically uh, numb to it or something, or some mixture of the two. Those, or, or you're not a mental sadist and you're not um, numb to the pain, but there's some other reward that makes it worthwhile. So the same as some people will push themselves very hard going for like a, a run around the neighbourhood or like in a sporting contest. So it's, it's painful it's just as painful for them as it would be for the people on the sidelines, but they get a thrill out of the, the contest. I guess that's another explanation for it. You know what I mean? So, so there's different ways you can explain it, but the point is just as most people won't run a, a marathon or train for a marathon or put themselves for any pain, so it is with uh, mental trauma. And if it is the case that learning this stuff puts us through a mental trauma of sorts, then it makes perfect sense that most people will never do it. Perfect sense. Thing that you use the analogy of the the flipping through the you know life flashing before your eyes kind of idea because um, it reminded me of um, when I took acid. the The main thing I remember from that experience uh, was that I was sitting in my my living room, and it was like for about thirty seconds I literally did just fast forward through my life up until that point, and then sort of. I sort of opened my eyes and it was like I've just arrived at this present moment in time and I've had the opportunity to go back and review everything I've done in my life, um, <laughs> obviously in, in very quick succession, just compressed into this 30 seconds of um, data download. Was sort of uh, The message there for me was that, um, you know, we are just everything we do and say is just the sum of all our life experience. You know, we're just like a computer, all this information and, and uh you know, input data is being put in. Um, we we can learn the outcomes of it, and uh, we go forward from there. So so trauma in the past, uh, we, we're more careful of things in the future, you know, because of of past experience. So if you you go back over your memories and you look at things and you've got a better understanding of it, you go, well, you know, you're right. Did this happen because for that, not because of uh, the sort of magical coincidental reason I, I thought it happened uh, for. Would you describe your experience of LSD as being therapeutic? Absolutely. Because you, you haven't done it that many times, am I right? Like I, 
I don't know how many times you've actually uh, gone on. Just that uh, once. Just that once. Just once. Wow. Could you see yourself doing it again? I tried something like that uh, in the past, but I don't think it was exactly what it claimed to be. So I, I just um, certain I'm sure only once. Um, but it could have been a second time, but it certainly wasn't anywhere near uh, anything like that. Did you go into it with the mindset that it could or would be therapeutic, or did you go into it with the mindset of a you know, thing for fun? Or, I mean, what was your Sorry, mindset? Sorry, you just dropped out. Can you repeat that? What was your mindset going into it? Like when you decided you were going to do this, what did you imagine was going to happen? Um, oh, probably just, well, I think going into it, my, my thought it was more of the, the sort of party hype that it was, I was going to see amazing things and, and that. But I think the result wasn't what I expected. It was more, much more deep into a lot of my beliefs and that. Like you're saying, there's a lot of other things that could have happened in my life that led me to where I am now. But for me, the one, the one sort of thing that stands out is my, in my memory is this sort of moment when I came online. And that's, that's really the feeling I got. Like none of this is expressed in words. I'm trying to do my best to use words to describe feelings, which is um, really not the best language. I mean, yeah, it was, it was like, Sorry, the, the reason why I asked the question is because I'm open-minded, very open-minded to this notion that some of these uh, so-called psychedelic drugs can be therapeutic. They can be a therapeutic thing. I'm very open-minded to that. I'm also open-minded to the possibility that these drugs can be incredibly harmful in ways that are barely even describable. And so um, I want, the reason I'm asking you about your mindset going in is if you, if you believed that these would have a good effect on you or if you were just going in there completely sort of, um, you know, pilotless. I get what you mean. And no, I, well, I, I expected they would have a positive effect, meaning more just like a, a visual sensation, not, not something that was actually more fundamental to my being about my beliefs. It was, for me, it was more of a surface thing about sort of seeing bizarre things for, for an evening actually yeah, get me to sort of question see putting 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 it in perspective for me was the fact that i i was able to fast forward through all that stuff in my life and burst into the present moment it was like uh, being given an awareness of time the fact that every every decision we made was just this decision tree that led us to where we are now and we're now going to use all that information we've built up to go forward and, and make more decisions so it was just just all that was like a message being delivered in what i experienced that okay this is this is what the message is so that's sort of what made me start to realise that, oh, okay, so everything I've always done is it's really like the ego death. You're just separating yourself from your beliefs and going, look, all those things were just things I believed. They were things I, I, I was told. Um, you know, I'm not sure how to explain it. Um, of all your experiences. So you separate yourself from that and now you're free of all that. And, and interestingly, if I can bring it up, um, have, you, have you seen uh, what Jim Carrey's up to lately? I'm not sure about what he's up to lately. The last I saw of uh, our friend Jim Carrey was he was talking about fractals on a red carpet at some uh, award ceremony a few months ago. But in terms of the films that he's working on or this kind of stuff, no, no I'm not, not aware. films. I'm just talking about that red carpet stuff because a lot of what he was saying resonated with me because it was kind of similar to all the stuff I was thinking at the time. He's, he's sort of dropped out of Hollywood and he's grown a beard and every every appearance he does, he rambles on about all this, there is no you, there is no me, ego, blah, blah, blah. And it, it sounds quite sort of... Um
If you like this audio and want to support the site in a small or big way, please hit the PayPal donate button on the side of the fakeologist.com webpage. You can show your support for as little as $1.19 a month by subscription or one-time donation. Thank you for your support. Did you make that one as well? No. That one, I like that. That's terrific. That's that's very good. Admin is an example of people who do seem able to revisit their ideas because, you know, it wasn't so long ago I had people judging me for installing the paywall of my website because there was this uh, notion that, oh, if you're talking about the truth, then, you know, it should be free for everyone and there should be no money involved, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Now, in Ab's, I'm not just trying to suggest that Ab, what he's doing is similar to me because obviously I have a paywall. He, his material is all still publicly available. So he's very much stuck with uh, what he said there. But it seems as though that chatter that was out there when it comes to, oh, money and, and truth or, or whatever, seems that, that chatter has died down now and more people are starting to see, hold on, if people are putting time into this, why should they not be supported for that? You know, if we're going to spend money on alcohol and other poisons, and Netflix and movies and professional sports and all the other shit that we spend money on, why wouldn't we actually send some money to people who are doing work that we believe in? It seems as though more people are coming around to that, and it is terrific to see. It's fantastic. Mm. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, he has a website to maintain, and uh, you know, it, 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 no one wants to be, just be pouring money out of their own pocket to, uh, to do that kind of stuff. Um, you know, well, he, he's proven that he will do it for free. He, he's proven that he will do it for free, right? So in theory, people could justify it as, well, he's done it for free. I know he'll do it for free, so you know, why, why should I uh, contribute to him, right? People could justify it in that way. But it's like, well, hold on. How much, what's the value that people get out of fakeologists? What's the value they get out of it versus how much they put in compared to the things that they think are evil, such as poisons and the mainstream media and professional sports, right? Generally, most people are putting far more of their money, which is, of course, their time, right? We, we trade our time for money. It's your life energy. We're putting more of our life energy into things that we claim that we don't like or that are bad for us than we are into things that we think are good for us. It's completely insane, isn't it? Essentially, yeah. M- money, everyone can say money's evil all they like, but, I mean, it is just the exchange exchange rate for our time. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I consider yeah, it to be like our life force. So, if I'm... If I'm deciding to put my life force into alcohol, for instance, right? If I'm doing that 40 bucks a week, that's two grand a year. Okay, I'm deciding that that poison or the experiences that come with poison, okay, fine, let's look at it the positive way. I'm, I'm over my is worth $2,000. It's worth that amount of my life force at this point in my life. Okay, great. Now let's compare that with things that I think are good for us. How much of my life force am I putting into those things? That's the way I see it now. And yet, a lot of people I listen to, they seem to see it as, oh, no, these things that I, that I believe are good, they should be free. Other people should be doing that for free. And when you take a step back and think about it, it's like, I'm listening to a fucking madman. I'm listening to insane people here. If they just sat down and inspected their own logic and were capable of thinking, they would see how ridiculous what they're saying is. But that's the whole point. They're not capable of actually thinking through the consequences of their own claims or their own beliefs, their own behaviours. So as the point of all of that is, that's a pretty cool ad and uh, it's good to see. You know, If he plays one of those per hour, I personally have no problem with it whatsoever. In fact, I encourage it. 
set them and put them on the half hour. So he has the hour markers and then the uh, the half hour advertising. Well, that's uh, I think that's fair enough. No problem whatsoever. But, uh, sorry, man, you were speaking before uh, before the, the thing cut in. You were talking about our friend Jim Carrey. Before you go further, can I just point out that Jim Carrey was a, another influence on me when I was younger. I I used to be a big Jim Carrey fan when I was uh, a younger dude. I used to watch all the movies and stuff. And to give you one example of the impact he had on me, I'm actually able to, if you were to look at me, I can move my left eyebrow or my w- right eyebrow independently of one another, right? It's a pretty cool party trick. It's one of the sort of facial expressions <laughs> tricks I used to use to, to make people laugh. Most people can't help themselves. If you do it in front of them, if you raise one eyebrow, most people can do that. But if you then put that eyebrow back down and raise the other eyebrow even, even higher, most people can't help but laugh, right? It's a great party trick, especially when you're young and you're outgoing and whatever, right? I developed that skill. I, I practiced it in front of a mirror after seeing Jim Carrey do something similar in Ace Ventura. And I was like, because at that stage, I could already lift one eyebrow. Most people can lift one eyebrow. But then he raised the second one, and I was like, is that even possible? So I went to the mirror, and I tried to, to raise my left eyebrow. And I could just see like a little bit of movement, and I thought, I wonder if I could practice that. So I'm not sure if it took me days or weeks or how long it took me, but eventually I got it going, right? Now, that might seem like a trivial thing. It kind of is a trivial thing, but... But I can tell I can tell you this little party trick that I've got that I haven't even used for a long time. I even forget that it's there itself. I can tell you where that came from. It came from Jim Carrey. It, it came from, I can even say what house I was living in at that time. That was a different house to the house from the earlier story. So th- there are these things that I can tell you about myself and where they came from. I could sit here all night and do that. And it would bore the hell out of most people. But the point that I'm trying to make is these are the kinds of things I know about myself. How many of the people who we mix with day to day can tell you Here's what I am or what I can do, and here's where it came from. I'm going to put to you it's not that many. Hmm. I, I'm sitting there looking in a mirror now. I'm going, uh, you know, I wish can I you could do, do that. I, I might, no, I can't. I, I, I have, got, have a friend who does it. So I've already learned my lesson the hard way not to try because it's only embarrassing when you try to do it in front of people and um, <laughs> both, both eyebrows go up. I can't even do one by itself. Mine just move in unison like, like a monobrow. Um, but it, it's interesting that it makes you aware of how much of our, how many of the muscles in our body we don't actually have control over. Most of them are just completely autonomous, and we don't actually target and use them. Yeah, yep. Who who knows? I feel like I've. Sorry, just give me a sec. Sorry about that. Yeah, for a shelf, which was great. No, that's right. I've got a massive, um, you know, those street sweeping machines, trucks one of those out the at the front so if you can hear that i apologize for that but uh, yeah but old jim carrey so um and then and then and then i forgot to mention that his film the truman show is the first film where i've tried to put together a proper film analysis like an esoteric analysis and i'm now convinced that the truman show can be very easily interpreted as an intentional initiation of somebody who does not realise they're being initiated. And not only that, but it's not just the character of Truman who is being initiated, but the audience with eyes to see are going through the initiation as well. But very few of the audience will have the eyes to see, of course. That's that's the nature of, of this realm, is that most of any audience are completely oblivious to what's really going on, right? But those with eyes to see can not only identify that Jim Carrey, his character, Truman, Harry Truman is being... Not Harry Truman, whatever his name is. Truman is being... Uh, being initiated. Truman Burbank. Truman Burbank, that's the one. 
Harry Truman. Yeah, I don't think so. Truman Burbank. <laughs> Truman Burbank is being initiated, but if you follow it with him, you can see that, but so are we, right? Like if, if we pay attention to what's happening, it is like a force greater than us is trying to encourage us to leave our own chicken coop. And that seems to be what happened with Truman. So, um, so yeah, he's, he's uh, a dude I've never met, and I have no idea how much he really knows. But um, even just one person, the effect that he has had on uh, on me, I can't quantify. I don't know. I don't know. That Masonic idea, um, message to leave the chicken coop, then then why is Jim Carrey still here bothering with TV appearances? You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, so I'm saying that the character in the film has, is being initiated. The, the point is we don't even know how much each of these actors knows. Do you know what I mean? At the end of the day, mm-hmm. if your job is to uh, to recite lines and then to read out certain lines as comically funny as you can, that's your job. That's what, that's what you do. You don't even mm-hmm. need to necessarily know any more than that. Now, does Jim Carrey know? I don't know. But he doesn't really have to because with film analyses, just like any esoteric analysis of, of any element of pop culture, whatever, the point is in the subjective analysis. And, th- and that's another thing too. I mean, my, my analysis of The Truman Show I'm not suggesting that this is the objective truth. I'm like, guys, let me just show you what I see in this film. Let me show you the key scenes and the, the little props that are in each scene or the way that one scene leads into the next or the way that this scene later in the film actually mirrors this other scene from earlier in the film and what I think they're trying to say. You, and then you, as the audience of my analysis, get to come to your own conclusions you know, and vice versa. So I watch other people's film analyses like Rob Agar I'm not necessarily agreeing with his conclusion, but if he points something out in a film that I hadn't noticed, I can still use that in my own understanding of the film. So if he points out a scene and I'm like, I had never noticed that. I've watched this film five times. I never noticed what he just pointed out, right? He might then in five minutes' time come to this conclusion where I'm like, well, that, I don't think the evidence actually points to that, Rob, but it doesn't matter. Rob has still helped me with his analysis. So I see, I see incredible potential for like a collegiate atmosphere where people are pointing stuff out looking at each other's conclusions not well i believe this so let me convince you well i believe this so let me convince you well you're wrong about that blah 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 it's like well can we just point out what we've noticed and then let each other come to our own conclusions that my subjective truth doesn't have to be your subjective truth my subjective truth doesn't have to be the objective truth but the problem is a lot of people there is no distinction between the subjective truth and the objective truth they don't even know the difference and it's not their fault no one's taught them no one's ever going to teach them. And if somebody tries to teach them now, they won't listen anyway because they've already got the truth. Being able to, to tell the difference is so important. Like, I mean, we're, we're all living a subjective reality. The idea that you can somehow interpret the truth, like you, you could you could witness something and someone else witnesses it, uh, you know, uh, from the other side of the road or whatever. So you can, you can both interpret completely different things, believe something happened completely differently and be completely convinced of it, but neither of you knows the objective truth. We can never know that. Well, now we're getting into uh, epistemology and uh, even existentialism. And, yeah, is it possible to know the objective truth? Is that even possible, to know the objective truth? Is there an objective truth? These are good questions where I don't really have a, a definite answer. And most people don't want to hear that, my friend. They want you to they want you to be very confident in what you're saying or else they won't even listen to it. You know what I mean? They're looking for confidence. They're looking for gravitas. They're looking for authority. They're looking for someone to trust. And if you don't even trust yourself that you've got the truth, then they're not going to trust you. And that's what they're here for, someone else to do their thinking for them. 
thing for a leader. Yep, um, 100%. I'd hazard a guess that there is no objective reality. I mean, we're all experiencing thing. Yeah, that was say, man. The Discord is saying that your avatar is green. It's got a green circle around it, but I can't hear any sound. So either your microphone or mine is causing us problems right now. They just screwed up then. Just I, I am back. That's all good. Right, now yeah, so Truman, so... Um, my train of thought was. Yeah, we, 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 no, think, now, now, now you're back. back. Get us back to uh, Truman. So I think you were going to tell us how it, um, he's now into like artwork. Because what happened was I saw him on that red carpet special and I thought, man, it's been a while since I've looked at, at, uh, at uh, Jim Carrey. So I had a look into what's going on with him and he's, apparently his girlfriend died. And, or she committed suicide, I think. And he helped sort of be the pallbearer at the, at the funeral. And then I read some tabloid speculation that her family was upset at him or something. This is all supposed to what happened in the real world, by the way. And then, um, and then yeah, he's, he's now a bit of a recluse and now he spends his time painting, is the story that I heard. But I don't know how much of that is true. I mean, how much of any of this is true? You know what I mean? I, I just thought it was interesting that a lot of the stuff he's coming out and saying is kind of the, the message that I got from the acid. It's all this kind of um, metaphysical stuff about the ego and I'm not really Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey is just a character I've been playing all those years. And I get exactly what he's talking about. Like, it, it really does relate to me. Like, I've, he's, he, he pointed out in something I heard, um, success and, and being able to not worry about um, what everyone else thinks of you. It's everyone else being driven by what people get of them. And he's basically saying, well, you've given up, you don't care anymore. And he said it better than I can. But I feel that's sort of where I am now. It's like I, I'm, I'd much rather just worry about what I know and, and just be able to get by. I'm not so concerned about having to be extremely successful or worry about, um, you know, the impression I make on people. And I think that's it. Like, it's interesting that it's still so, despite everyone sort of lives in this, this um, dual belief of thinking they're somehow above it, but they're also very aware of, of the fact that they're, they're concerned with what people think of them. Like, I mean, you only need to look at the average person to see how much time they spend on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and, and uh, purveying that, that edited, um, idealised version of themselves to all the people around them. And, like, I've got friends who who claim they're all, like, they're awake, they're totally aware, you know, like, Facebook's just advertising, blah, blah, but they still stop at every occasion to take silly pictures and post it and try to try to get a bit of credit and people's attention for these things that just do not matter. And that's kind of what Jim Carrey was getting at, the fact that it just doesn't matter. And that's sort of the, the, what the belief I subscribe to now is, like, what who am I trying to impress? It does not matter at all. Yeah, I get what you're saying, but can you're I give you... Away by, can I give you uh, an alternative? Like, let me throw uh, alternative eight. What if, and just hear me out here, what if convincing a whole bunch of humans to like you is a, is a noble, uh, maybe not noble, but is a worthwhile uh, spend, you know, expenditure of your time, right? Like, like, on the one hand, you can say, oh, you know, who cares? Does it really matter if people like you or whatever? Okay, that's fair enough. I'm very open to that train of thinking. But how about this other train of thinking that, well, since we don't know exactly what we're here for and anyone who's being completely honest and has an IQ above room temperature will tell you we don't really know for sure why we're here and different possibilities open up so since we don't really know what we're here for and since it seems to feel so good when everybody likes you what uh, what is wrong with pursuing the path of trying to convince people to like you I think maybe there's some sort of uh, energy harvesting happening and you're somehow rewarded by the amount of people you can um, sway to follow you well, have you ever done stand-up comedy before? Uh, no. 
I have, I have, and I was inspired to do stand-up comedy by a guy called Bill Hicks, and I actually sat down and started writing comedy for the first time during my first acid ever trip. My first, the first ever time I did acid was also the first time where I finally put some of what I thought was funny material into a written form that I could then later use at a stand-up uh, gig, but I never put it into stand-up, into open mic stand-up, until later on when I found Bill Hicks got right into his work and um, I watched this uh, documentary called Bill Hicks' American Story, and I watched that while I was high as a kite, not on acid but on, on weed at the time. But that film is filmed in such a way that if you're on, if you're on weed, then it's an amazing thing to watch. So between, between the acid and watching Louis C.K. and the weed and watching Bill Hicks' American Story, that was the final thing I needed. Bang, I went and did some stand-up comedy, right, because it was an open mic circuit here in Brisbane. There still is the same group, still do it apparently. I haven't been back there for years, but I did a few sets of open mic stand-up comedy, and we're talking 2013, sort of now 2018. So we're talking, I mean, this is going to be five years. Wow, that went quick. So, so I've been up there in front of a whole bunch of strangers telling jokes, right? And I can tell you that when it goes terribly, it is a horrible, horrible feeling. It's uh, not quite as low as I've ever felt, but yeah, that night, or, or the bus ride home, it's uh, you really, it's really soul-searching stuff when... You're saying stuff that you think is funny, and you've got 30 or 40 sets of eyeballs staring at you going, get this guy off. That's just a low feeling, right? However, I also know the experience of going back to the same place just a few weeks later, maybe a couple months later, and having them all laughing, and you can see how good they all feel, and having a whole room laughing at your jokes, and you're feeling good about it, and you, like you get to a point, it's only a five, you only get five or six if you're doing okay, maybe you get seven minutes, right? It's only a very short thing. But you get to the point where by the end of it, you can tell they want you to stay, but it's like, well, I can't because we all only get five minutes here, so it's been great, blah, blah, blah. People come up to you afterwards and talk to you. And like I can tell you the two extremes of that experience, they're, uh, they're, hard to, they're hard to explain. They're hard to explain. Now, these are random people. Why the hell should I care or have any emotional uh, response if these people love me or hate me? Especially after five or six minutes, right? Of of what I of what I'm saying. Especially I'm up there being a, trying to be a comedian. I'm being silly. You know what I mean? Of all times to judge me, when I'm being silly is almost the stupidest time you would think in theory, right? But those experiences, those are real experiences. Those are real experiences of my time in this realm. I felt amazing when people loved me, and I felt horrible when people hated me. Even though I was no different. <laughs> right? It was. All right. I was. Whatever I am, I am. I was still that. In, at the top and at the bottom. So, so why? This is so completely illogical, and yet that was my experience at the time. Now, what are we here for if not a good experience? So you can see where I'm going with this. Maybe the people who successfully spend their time getting people to like them, maybe that is a sensible thing for them to do. Maybe. Do you think it's the adoration of the people that somehow spiritually feeds your soul or do you think it's um, of your own doing because you, you feel rewarded by the fact that you know people are enjoying you? I can't explain it. I can't tell you. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm open-minded to this um, you know, metaphysical, this spiritual, this uh, extra-dimensional notion of feeding off the energy. Like if they're having a good time, they're bringing good energy and you're getting the good energy, you're the centre of the attention. So if you've got... And, and one of the times where it went well, because I did, I did five in the end, five of these uh, open mic nights, one of them that went really well, there would have, there would have probably been closer to 60 or 70 sets of eyeballs in the, in the room. So when you're the center of that attention, 
mm. and everyone's having a good time. I mean, not not literally seeing people laughing, but the bulk of them are all laughing, having a good time. You can see the smiles. Uh, you can almost sort of feel the affection in their eyes, like they're having a good time. I'm open-minded to this possibility that 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 positive energy is all being focused on you, and you are benefiting from it in sort of intangible or uh, immeasurable uh, ways. I'm open-minded to that possibility. I'm also open-minded to the possibility that it is entirely in your own mind. It has nothing to do with, uh, with, with those people. It's just you're, you're making them laugh and you've been programmed or it's, it's part of your natural human nature to get a positive response. You know, you can try and explain it in that reductionist, um, you know, endorphins in the brain way. Do you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm open-minded to those perspectives. I don't know. I don't know why. Why, uh, why having a whole bunch of strangers want you to get off the stage because you're shit-ass is it such a bad feeling and why the opposite is such a good feeling. I don't, I don't actually know the reason why. All I know is from experience that that is the case. That was the case for me, which leads me to wonder if these people who are trying to get people to like them, if what they're doing is necessarily a, a bad or a, a non-good or a, you know, it, ma- it makes me wonder, is it really such a bad thing? Or, or are they potentially, if they're successful at it, are they potentially onto a, a sensible thing? Uh, stand-up comedy is one of those is one of the most risky things like that, isn't it? Like it's known it's known for that, and I mean it, it attracts so many people that are have so much self-loathing. That like the amount of people uh, comedians that have died of drug overdose and other things because they like to live on that um, you know tightrope um, of either having people adore them or or you know you risk um, being completely hated for it. Like I'm, I'm like I haven't done stand-up comedy. I, I wish um, I, I could write some material that was going to be um, worth performing. But um, I'm a big fan. I've gone to Melbourne several years to go and watch the um, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, which is um, pretty famous worldwide. And in that, I like to go uh, like there's big headliners. I like to go watch, and there's also a lot of small like some of the best stuff is just small underground stuff. You go to you go to the basement of some pub somewhere. I mean Melbourne's open. Places everywhere just have comedy on for that month. Fan of it, but certainly um, seems apparent to me that a lot of people that uh, you know, a lot of people that do it are certainly um, to, to experience that rush of having it work well and take the risk for it to work well. Yeah, there's no question in my mind that that is the case. That it attracts a certain type of mind that uh, that may be more susceptible to what we call depression or the suicide of those sorts of things. And at the same time, whether or not people are already that way predisposed, if they're constantly putting themselves before an audience directly, then they are, they're constantly putting themselves in a situation where <laughs> they, they might find themselves, uh, you know, self-loathing. You know, like a bad set can be a real, uh, a really down experience. There's not only but a it, lot of drug use behind the scenes, but also like uh, on stage, a lot of people perform high or drunk. Like it's a, a certain mindset to be funny that they, they find that's comforting and it's better for them to work that way. And I get where it comes from. Like, I mean, like, you know, I've worked in media uh, for many years, so I know that there's plenty of people that um, find it easier to perform when they're, when they're inebriated, you know. Yeah, absolutely. No question about that. You've also got the other element of it would probably be a bit of a black pill for people to realize that you can uh, get in front of a bunch of people and tell the exact same jokes from one week to the next, and one week these people hate you, and the next week they love you or vice versa. You know, that, that these romantic ideas that we have about humans and how smart or sensible or um, 
considerate they are, those can be very quickly washed away when we can see just how fickle they are. You know, to mm. to see to see the fickleness of an audience can be a bit of a black pill experience, I would think. So for me, I did like I said, five open mic stand up sets, right? So that that stuff all meant some of the people who were on the same Brisbane open mic circuit, some of these people, I saw them do the exact same set ten times, man. Like their jokes didn't even change from set to set. They're literally getting up and telling their same five minute routine, like as a hobby, right? Like for me, it was an experience. Were you honing the delivery as you went on? Uh, yeah, I mean, if, what what most? I mean, people, different people have different um, attitudes towards it. I had all this of sort of scribbling things down, but I had all this stuff I wanted to get through, and so each time I got up there, I changed it up. But there are other people who were sort of they'll try five minutes worth of material. If for one minute works, they keep the minute. They work on say two of the minutes that that maybe will work with better delivery. Like they're constantly just trying to get their five-minute set perfect, right? Like that, that's what they're doing. And so to answer your question, different people, to answer your question, different people have different attitudes towards it. In my case, I was just telling different jokes off the, like off the, the list that I had written over the time. But my, my point is that the people who are constantly doing this, who are getting up and doing, I mean, some of the people, they might not be telling the exact same jokes each time, but some of them had done this open mic thing literally a hundred times or more because many of them have the idea that if they get good enough they they might be able to turn it into a career or something and some some do i mean that does happen but you know, that was their um that was their aim so imagine putting yourself before an audience dozens and dozens or a hundred times i can see how that would uh, drive some people crazy man i can see how it would drive some people crazy just doing that the feedback from uh, like negative feedback can still be very valuable if they've got the tough skin to to deal with that i mean often it's not the idea of the joke that's bad it's it's how you take the audience on the journey with you. You've got to, if like, like good comedians um, aren't on stage riffing, uh, you know, without preparation. The jokes are so specifically rehearsed with the right cadence and uh, timing, the right order of words, so that the audience uh, is exactly along for the ride as the joke's delivered. They're, you know, like the things aren't explained too quick and you don't really follow what the joke was about or something. You, you've got to hone it so it's just right, you know, and, um, often mixing it up and changing it's how they, they gauge the, the reaction to figure out what's going to be funniest. Yeah, that's part of it. Definitely your delivery is a huge part of the outcome. But also, I think, and this is not just based on my experience, but what I've seen, because I used to go to these open mic nights and even when I was not, like I, I hadn't been selected because there was such a high demand for spots that you were lucky to get a spot a lot of the time. But sometimes I would still go just to watch the others. And what I came to see was how much the audience itself had a huge effect like to the point where you're better off doing a bigger audience than a smaller one because the bigger audience work off each other. So a funny joke is funnier when more people are laughing, right? As silly as that sounds. But it makes perfect sense if you think about things like canned laughter on TV. The average person is more likely to enjoy a TV show if they've got the TV telling them when the joke was just told, right? So it is with audiences. In general, an audience member will have a better time in a larger audience because more people will be laughing at whatever joke is told. So what I'm trying to say so is that... group psychology, though, they're all going to join in as well when... Yeah, well, I know that now. Over. I know yeah. that now because I've been studying crowd psychology and Gustavo Bon and all of this. But this was 2013, so I, I was only vaguely familiar at best with these concepts, right? But I just noticed that, like... Because I did one. One of the five was in front of... It literally would have been 10 other dudes doing their, their stand-up set 
and and literally maybe 10 other people total, including the guy behind the bar at the venue, right? Like it would have been 20 people tops would have been <laughs> listening along, right? And uh, almost no one got a laugh that night, right? Be- because there was no one to laugh, right? The crowd had no one to work off. You know, if, if you're sitting there, uh, maybe with your girlfriend and you're having a beer, you've just gone out to a to a local venue to see the open mics that uh, Mike sets that night. You, you know, if, if you laugh at a joke, everyone can hear you laughing. Like it makes you more self right? Whereas when you're in a bigger audience, you feel more free to laugh. This is the natural feeling that people have. So the point I'm trying to make is it's not just about people's delivery. It's also about the crowd as well. So maybe this is an element of, of one of the reasons why people so go, uh, so many people go sort of crazy after after getting into comedy is because they're getting they're getting some black pills about the human condition, maybe without the capacity to really process what they're seeing as well. They don't have the understanding of crowd psychology that you and I might have or that some of the audience members might have. Definitely don't, because how many, how many new comedians um, go, have got the opportunity to fil- film a TV special or something? Like uh, the ABC government here in Australia supports... Um, the arts in that way. So someone might be granted the opportunity to to do a comedy special, but they they only have like two rows of seats. And it's like, well, why wouldn't you? If you if you knew even the slightest bit about that, you would know to go book a bigger venue and get a bigger crowd in. So they evidently don't know how that works. Well, on the yeah, on the open uh, mic circuit, it's just uh, what happens is venues will pay a company. The company organises all the open mics. So it, it makes perfect sense, right? Suppose you run a venue. You might spend, let's say it's $200 to get this company to bring their open mic uh, thing once per, once, say once per month for argument's sake, right? It costs that company nothing to get all the open mics stand-up comics. All they pay for is the one, say, professional or more often semi-professional comedian who is the MC of the night. So venue pays company, company pays semi-professional comedian to MC, but it also has, you know, 10 or 12 times five minutes. It's also got an hour of entertainment. It works out. And then the people giving up their time, us people giving up our time for the open mic set, it works out good for us because we're getting an audience to, to practice our stuff in front of, whether it's for a hobby or because we think we're going to become professional uh, stand-up comedians or whatever. So it all, it all makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I'm going to suggest to you that most of the people who were doing the open mic sets couldn't tell you the first thing about crowd psychology, even though you and I know how much value there is in understanding the crowd if you're going to perform in front of one. It's just a glamorous idea to go and uh, give it a crack in the in the entertainment yeah. biz. Yeah, and I can't I can't judge them for that because, like I said, I I did all of this in 2013, so this is before I this is back when I still thought the news was real. This is back when I still was completely retarded. Do you know what I mean? I'm going um, later this month. I haven't exactly got the money to go heading down to Melbourne for the comedy festival again, but um, here in Sydney uh, that are hosted for any any Sydney-based comics to actually practice their new sets for the Melbourne festival. So I've uh, got some tickets so I can go and see that. When's that? Thing, I guess. Um, Going on the 15th? No, 15th or 17th, I think. Of January? Well, the festival starts in March, so this will have stuff on. Like you'd probably you'd be able to find something up there in Brisbane as well, I reckon. They they put on practice nights so the the, um, the comedians have an audience to practice in front of with their new material. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, listen, man, I can't um, stick around for too much longer. It's 11:30. I've got a big day ahead of me tomorrow, but there's something I want to run past you before I do get going. You ready for this? 
What All I've right. done is while we've been talking, I've just had the TV, the normie vision on in the background, no no audio, and I've had it on Fox News just to, just to see what is on Fox News at this time of night because the one of the fellows I live with is not here and he usually is uh, always watching TV of, of an evening, but he's not here tonight. So I've been able to have this little conversation out in the lounge room, right? So I've got the normie vision on and I've got Fox News on. It's apparently 8.30 Eastern time in America right now as we speak. And it's Fox and Friends, uh, their morning, it's their morning uh, show, I guess. Anyway, they must have just had a segment on about tobacco because they had a guy in a white coat who looked like a doctor and they had lots of clips of people smoking cigarettes, right? Are you familiar with the concept of no SIBO, right? So you've got plus SIBO, P-L-A, SIBO. Are you familiar with the concept of no SIBO, N-O, SIBO? Um, but um, I think you'll have to tell me exactly what it is. So most of us get this idea of placebo, right? A person goes to a doctor with an ailment and the doctor says, I know what you've got, it's this, take these things twice a day, it'll fix you. There is a good chance that that person will feel as though these pills have fixed them, right? This is what Authority, mind over matter. Mind over matter, the, uh, the ability of authority, not just the doctor, but the pharmacist, the pharmacy, the pharmaceutical company. So long as they believe in the remedy, there's a good chance. It doesn't chance. even have to be um, medical. You can have placebo effects in all kinds of uh, things. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, so we're all familiar with the placebo. How many of us are familiar with the idea that the opposite is also true? So if we have a negative opinion, oh, what I'm taking is going to kill me, the very same thing could happen, but the inverse. So suppose the doctor says to you, it's my job to kill you. You are to take two of these pills every day. These pills will kill you. It's been proven that in most cases these pills will kill you. Why would we not think that the exact same thing could happen but the inverse, that we actually start feeling less healthy and getting less healthy as a result of our belief that these things are bad for us? Are you with me so far? Why are you taking them if you think the doctor's trying to kill you? I'm not... <laughs> yeah, why, why would you take them? Yeah, you probably wouldn't take them. But what if it was something that was pleasurable, that your parents did and their grandparents did, and it was a social thing, and you found that it made you think a little bit better, or it it uh, perked you up for another hour or two hours of work or study or whatever you do, and uh, it makes you feel good, right? That's why you're taking it on a regular basis. So you're basis. saying the, the cigarettes are a nocebo, meaning uh, you know it's bad for you, you, you continue to take it. Uh, nope. So nocebo is just a, a concept. It's just the inverse of placebo. What I'm suggesting is that if you take something that all the humans do, or lots of the humans do, because they enjoy it socially, recreationally, psychologically, and then you tell them, oh, this thing that you do, uh, it's going to kill you. It's going to kill you. Look at, this, look at this eyeball. This eyeball can't see anymore. Look at this toe. This toe's falling off. Uh, look at this baby. This baby's deformed now, right? You put these pictures and all the packets of the cigarettes. You tell the kids at school cigarettes are going to kill you, even though many humans are still going to smoke because it's a very enjoyable thing for them to do. What effect is that having on them? Is it possible that a lot of the negative consequences that we see associated with tobacco smoke are from people's belief that what they're smoking is bad for them. Is that possible? Uh, I, I would say so. I don't, I'm not a heavy smoker, but I do smoke, and I'm not entirely convinced that it's bad for me. <laughs> um, I, I'm more sceptical of that because I know the way, I have an, a better understanding of the way the world works and the way the media and other places lie to us. I'm sceptical of why they're so keen to push health advice on us about cigarettes, you know what I mean? Like, if, if the world is such an evil place, why would they be busy trying to uh, 
to tell us how bad smoking is. It doesn't really doesn't really jive. You get me? But Velasay, Velasay, weren't you shown copious yes. scientific studies when you were in being told about how evil tobacco is? Didn't they show you guys the studies? Didn't they show you the double-blind scientific empirical studies with large sample sizes to show the negative consequences of tobacco smoke? Of course the answer is no. You know what we were given? We were given a talking giraffe. We were given a giraffe hand puppet to tell us it's Oh, sorry, I thought we just tried to say it. Sorry, I thought you... Yeah, okay, yeah. So <laughs> we, were given prof- we were given propaganda. What? We were given indoctrination about how evil tobacco smoke is, right? Many of us, and this includes me, We'd go home to our parents and say how evil smoking was, and we knew how, how evil it was because we just learned at school. Like, how, how come some people still smoke and everyone knows it's bad for them? Oh, well, because it's addictive, blah, 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 right? We were indoctrinated at school to believe that tobacco was evil when we were at an age when most of us wouldn't have been able to pronounce double-blind study. I don't think this is a coincidence. I, I totally misunderstood what you were getting at with all the evidence. But, um, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. The, but what I'm saying, the reason I was sceptical for it is the fact that the, the, this propaganda seems so pertinent that I'm sceptical of it because of the propaganda, you know? Good, good. Like I, I think wonder, that's, a, that's a good reason to be sceptical of anything is all this propaganda surrounding it. You've got to wonder why that is. Like, I mean, I, I've done nowhere near the kind of research that you do. Um, I take a lot of things you say and, and consider it and add that to my understanding of things. I'm not on the forefront of doing all my own research. Yeah, that's fully. I fully understand. That's understandable. What I'm yep. what I'm suggesting is that um, most of us have not seen any genuine research or what's. Look, most people never even read scientific studies. Okay, let's be let's be fully frank here. Of those people who do, generally they're only looking at the scientific studies that have been hand selected for them by Google. You know what I mean? Oh, well, oh, yes, I have the studies. I'll Google it right now on my phone. See, they haven't actually. Yes. They haven't actually tried to go and look at evidence for themselves to see, well, what are there studies that go against my pre-existing beliefs? When you were when you were listing all the supposed studies we'd heard about in school, the reason I said yes is because I'm assuming you, you were you were making mockery of the fact that it's suggested that they exist when they don't, and I think I think that's the point. Well, I don't. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I can't tell you what is the largest double-blind study that has been performed on the topic of tobacco and its consequences on humans. I can't tell you. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I would be pleasantly surprised if one does exist. And if it does exist, great. I'd be more than happy to read it, but I don't even know. So when I realized that, I was like, wow, I was absolutely convinced that tobacco must be bad for us. The truth is I don't know. I don't know. What I could do is I could say, well, here's my pre-existing belief. I'm going to go and search for evidence that suits that belief, all right? That's what I could do. That's what most humans do when they realize that they don't actually have evidence for their claims or their beliefs. In my case, it's like, wow, uh, that's another one to add to the list of things that hopefully I will eventually find time to go and look into. But in the meantime, I no longer believe that tobacco smoke is bad for me. There's no more pubs in Australia where people, as far as I'm aware, where people can, can smoke, right? But before I realized this, I would have felt, if I was inhaling secondhand smoke, for instance, I would have felt like it was having a bad effect on me and it would have had a bad effect on me. Whereas now, if I was in the presence of other people's secondhand smoke, I wouldn't be thinking, oh, this is bad for me. I'd be thinking, oh, maybe it is. I mean, it's, maybe, maybe it's not a nice smell, but in terms of my actual health, I've got no evidence that this is bad for me. None. Zero. Zilt. So so what SIBO do you call that when when um, it's just purely interpretation? I call it the SIBO. Mm-hmm. I'm calling it the SIBO, and I sell them in packets of 100, and I'll give you a discount, 50% off, just mention fakeologists, 
and uh, in, in the voucher portion of the website, and mm-hmm. uh, you'll get 50% off, right? That's my special deal for all the fakeologists out there. Skepticivo, just put in the voucher fakeologist, 50% off, packet of 100. What do you reckon? So it's the uh, the belief. It'll that have no effect on you. Even. It'll have neither a positive nor a negative effect on you. You'll just going, be mad. Going back to Tivo and how it's the inverse, I'm not sure I understood exactly what you were getting at. Okay, so with a placebo, it's, it's a belief that's driving you, not not any actual physical reaction. Okay, so if you look at the meta studies where they collate a whole bunch of different studies on the efficacy of, say, SSRIs or other so-called antidepressants, what you'll find is that the real antidepressants, the real ones with the real active chemicals, are no more effective than placebo. Which is to say that somebody who walks into a, a psychiatrist's office presenting symptoms of what is called depression, for argument's sake, right? That psychiatrist can prescribe that person a real SSRI or a real, uh, you know, antidepressant or whatever, or they can prescribe them a sugar pill. So long as they convince the person that the sugar pill is good for them, and they don't call it a sugar pill, that makes it too obvious, you have to call it, you know, whatever, give it some, some fancy name, but give them the sugar pill. That person will report, is just as likely statistically to report an alleviation of their symptoms as the person who was given the so-called real antidepressant, okay? And this has been shown time and time and time again. How do we explain this? One explanation is the placebo effect. If we think that what we're doing is good for us, it's amazing how often it seems to have that effect, okay? You can call it mind over matter or whatever. So the concept of nocebo is if the mind has that much influence over our physical health, or our, or our mental health, right? our overall condition as a human being, if positive thinking can have that much of an effect, oh, this, this therapy is going to help me, so it helps me, then it stands to reason that the same thing can happen in the inverse, right? So it's so just simply told, so somebody, being so told that something's negatively... Yeah, so if somebody is telling us that what we're doing is bad for us, but we're doing it anyway, whether it is because we are addicted or because it is a very enjoyable or because we use it to get through the day, which a lot of people do. Smoking is a way to just break up their day every hour, every 90 minutes, whatever it is. They go out for a smoke with their workmates, they have a laugh. They can go back into work and, and get through another 90 minutes of, of being in a, a human version of a fucking rat, you know, a rat house, right? Yeah. So, so, so humans are going to smoke anyway, okay? No matter how much you tell them it's bad for them, they're still going to do it. But by telling them how bad it is, by implanting this in their mind, then you've got this person, either consciously or subconsciously, taking a, a, a poison pill, right? This is killing me. And so what some people are starting to question is, is all of this telling people how evil it is actually contributing to any negative consequences that are coming from the tobacco? That is, it's not the tobacco itself that's killing these people. It's these people believing that they're killing themselves. Every time they take a puff, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go blind, I'm going to lose a toe, my baby's going to be deformed, whatever. Yeah. It's really bad for me. The, the, Back in primary school, the giraffe told me it was bad for me, right? Is that potentially what is leading to any negative consequences that we might be seeing associated with tobacco use? And to me, the obvious answer is that makes perfect sense. Of course, that would be the case. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be anything we're making a choice to do either. It could be, uh, you know, believing that chemtrails are busy poisoning you um, <laughs> causes to negative health consequences. So maybe they just spray uh, harmless shit in the sky and, and create the illusion that it's some big secret and it's bad for you. That is a perfect um, point. That's an excellent point to make. How much of all these people sitting around in their online forums or YouTube or Discord server chats talking about how evil the government mm-hmm. is, how much are these people killing themselves with that mindset? 
They're poisoning the water. They're poisoning the food. They're poisoning the air. Everything the, the I do is poison. I, the thing I like to go back to is if, if someone was really trying to poison you, there's no reason to be putting anything in the air when you can access people's food and water. Why would you bother randomly spraying crap in the air? <laughs> well, I don't mean to be a, I don't mean to be a contrarian, but I mean for all we we don't we don't know what technology is in use. So you could argue that whatever they're putting in the air, they've decided that it is the most effective way to spread whatever poisons like. Like, mm-hmm. I don't personally believe in chemtrails, but I think the argument of, oh, why would they do that? You, you could apply that same argument to any to anything. Well, why would they do that? Well, obviously we wouldn't know, would we? No, you're right. The the, the logic your logic is sound. It just to me, it's people claiming that it's just for for poisoning seems you know. I, it just seems like a well, bit of a fast stretch. Well, I think where you you and I can agree is that these people who sit around talking about all these things may in fact be poisoning themselves by doing it, right? If you get to a, to a stage where you're convinced that the air you breathe and or the food you eat from the ground and or the water that you drink from the air or from, from the tap or whatever, if you're convinced that it's bad for you and you're constantly thinking about that, then it may well be the case that you are killing yourself. And for me, this is a very logical argument because most people can understand the concept of placebo. Most people can understand the concept of placebo. No SIBO is the same concept, just applied on the inverse. So those people who are going around all the time focusing on how bad things are, well, guess what they're doing to themselves, man? They're killing themselves. And the people who enable them to do this are enablers, right? So the people who enjoy sitting around talking about negative shit with each other, they're enabling each other's self-destruction. When you actually get your head around what's going on in this uh, alternative conspiracy truth realm, when you actually get your head around it, you can see how sick it is. It's like It's like a, a bunch of mentally, genuinely mentally ill people enabling each other's mental illness. Mm. And, and why? Because they're lonely. Because, because they're, you know, they're, their friends and family still real. And most of these people have at least worked out that maybe what's on the TV is not real. You, know, you can't really talk about that at Christmas, man. Especially if there's just been a, a big shooting or a bombing or, a ter- you know, whatever nonsense. You know, so so these people are lonely, so they find themselves hanging out in very negative places, and um, and usually they're completely oblivious to what's going on. And I can't judge them because, like I said, I I fell into all of these traps myself. No, I think we've all been there. Uh, <laughs> I'm happy to put my hand up and say I was I was there once too. Yeah, well, you're still young, my yeah, friend. You're still like young. Things. I'm still I'm still relatively young. So you and I, hopefully, if we take care of ourselves, we've still got more than half of our lives ahead. So at least we can sit around and say. Well, I got sucked into believing in a whole bunch of nonsense that uh, probably wasn't true, you know. But I came out the other side, and and here I am to talk about the things I got right, the things I got wrong, you know. And I'm still open to changing my mind. I'm sure there's still things I'm wrong about. So, uh, so maybe it's worked out okay for us. Uh, maybe. I mean, time will tell. We're never going to unsee it anytime soon, anyway. But you got to just on just on that cigarette thing. You got to really wonder: is Australia actually leading the world in its uh, packaging laws, or is it leading the world in, in negative propaganda? Yeah, uh, is the Australian one, one government by like putting these pictures on all of its packaging? Is the Australian government leading the world in killing its own people, or helping these people to kill themselves? Dude, try this. Next time you have a smoke, like, uh, just try this. Just try imagining that this is actually medicine that you've been told is bad for you. Right? I'm, I'm willing to bet you're going to feel a lot better after that smoke. Right? Whereas the people who are like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I won't buy another packet after this one. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe this is, you know, the people who have those negative thoughts that have been implanted in their brains are going to feel less good. I mean, even if it's just a purely mental thing, they're going to feel less good after having a smoke. 
Whereas someone who thinks, maybe this is kind of medicinal, you know what I mean? And maybe this is why humans have always smoked this plant. And um, the thing, according to <laughs> history, um, yeah, like, I mean, people smoke tobacco. It's not, uh, why is it being demonized just within it? such a short period of time? It's a social thing, isn't it, right? Like, it feels good. It feels good to sit around having a smoke with people at, uh, at a smoke break at work, whatever, doesn't it? It's better just, it if just you're feels in, good. in a stressful job to, to, to force you to take that break and go and just think for a little while and not be um, so overly focused, you know? Yeah. Now, I'm not trying to condone or promote uh, cigarette smoking because the reality is we don't even know what's in these um, uh, packs of smokes or, the, or whatever. So... So I'm not certainly trying to promote it. I mean, if, if I knew someone who grew their own tobacco plants, though, uh, I would have no hesitation at all. No, none, none whatsoever. Not only smoking for myself, but if I enjoyed it, encouraging that to others. The reason why I wouldn't encourage people to take up smoking or to, to keep smoking is because the reality is we don't know what is, what is in there. We don't know. So I can't encourage it if we don't know. But I'm just trying to suggest that what we've been told, we also don't know that. Right? And the people who are telling us, as, as you've alluded to, why the hell would we trust them? And then think about this, right? So right now, people are being uh, propagandized via films and via TV and now even through government legislation to believe that uh, weed is good. Hey, it's this plant. Is this med- most, most truthers believe this. Weed is this medicinal plant. It's good for you. It, it grows. They just convinced us it was bad for us, but it's actually good for us, right? So people are happy to, to see that this could be the case with weed. But most of them... Uh, recoil in horror at the idea that that's actually the case with tobacco. No, no. Weed is the medicine that was propagandized as being evil. Um, tobacco was actually bad for us. And it's like, okay, that's possible. But but they both grow in the dirt. So <laughs> it's actually just as possible that it's yeah, the other way around. It makes just as much, just as much sense that weed would be legalized because you're, you're going to end up with a nice passive society. It's no different to alcohol, is it, really? Like, yeah, and, and also a fucking mindless... Yeah, and also a mindless zombie population, man. I'm 30 now, so I've had enough time. I've had enough time to see people and to and to sort of study their behaviour. And it's becoming clear to me now that weed is not this harmless thing that that I was led to believe that it is. Right? The I've met enough people now. This is just anecdotal experience, but I've met enough people now who are completely absent-minded. Who and there's a correlation, maybe not a causation, of course, but there's a correlation between between heavy weed smokers and absent-mindedness and just um, inactivity in life, never never pushing themselves. There's enough of a correlation for me to think that maybe there, that there is something to this. Not to say that all people who smoke weed are bad people, not to say that weed is negative overall or that people shouldn't. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just saying that this notion that weed is, is harmless or that it's a medicine, I'm, I'm not that old, but I've seen enough now to think that's a load of fucking bullshit, man. Pardon my language. That's a load of shit. But somehow well, they've... Somehow they've convinced, they've managed to convince us, and this includes me up until relatively recently in my life, they've convinced us that tobacco is the thing that's evil and, and weed is, is the medicine. Like, now, now the to me... Day, they're all just plants. You can, you can eat, like, it's, uh, and that's, I guess, like when you said uh, acid could be, could be dangerous, I'm like, well, at the end of the day, there, there's certain, you know, uh, berries you don't want to pick off a tree and eat because they're poisonous uh, to a human. But at the end of the day, it's all just, you know, biomatter that's here. It's a, it's a construct that you're applying to it to suggest that this is better than that or, the, you know what I mean, like cause and effect. Like at the end of the day, we put heaps of food into our bodies, you know. We, do we know which, what food is really better for us than other food? Like, I mean. Well, I don't think we do know, generally speaking. It amazes me how many people 
uh, constantly cooking food that they assume is healthy that has 10, 20 chemicals in it. They've never even looked at the ingredients list. And it's like, what makes you think that that's healthy for you? What on earth makes you think that a food that processed could possibly be healthy? What, you know, it's just something they don't think about, isn't it? No, I, and when, I, when I first woke up to this stuff, sorry. Are they encouraged to think about this stuff? No, they're not. So it's not their fault. It's not their fault. They just, they're just in routines. Same as using microwaves, man. Just using microwaves. Oh, yeah. There's this thing in my kitchen. I just put food in. I press buttons. Ding! It comes out hot. Uh, how, does that, how does that machine work? Oh, it uh, shoots uh, microwaves use, through the water molecules. It, it, shoots, it shoots microwaves yeah, through the probably. water molecules, which makes the water molecules jump up and down and creates like a friction internally in the molecules, and it makes my food hot. Uh, and it's like, oh, really? How do you know that? Well, because science. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's a device in your, in your house that if you were in it, it would kill you, and you can't put living things in it because it kills them. You can't even put metal in it, right? It's, you can't put anything. But the food you're that you eat... The food that you're going to eat, that, that can just go in there. Yeah, no problems. Yep. Good that morning, gentlemen. Place. Good morning. This is Kay. G'day. G'day, Mike. This is Kay. How you doing? Hi, John. Hello, Hi. Kay. Hen. How are you? Good. Um, I, I hope you're not uh, microwaving your oats this morning. Uh, um, you know, that's funny because, like, you can talk to people who used to just just to do that for a minute to people who used to work on microwave towers and like these technicians would tell you microwaves are harmless because they used to walk in front of the transmitters all the time and be just fine. I'd like to have a long-term study on that and see. But anyway, back to uh, marijuana. I think the crucial issue isn't if they're doing it or not. It's why they're doing it. Because there's a whole lot of the population that is stressed out of their mind, whose adrenal glands are shot, and they're using marijuana. They're self-medicating. That's the issue. Most people aren't doing it for pleasure. No, they're doing it because they're trying to self-medicate. That's the real issue. So why are so many people self-medicating? And why are so many people going and drinking on a weekend to relieve stress? It's just a... Uh, a tool we've been given by the authority and, and okay so they've introduced a new one now to cope with uh, life's little day-to-day issues and, right. and just uh, when you said two on the long-term study believe me I, I worked in radio for a long time uh, I know people that have stood near transmitters and believe me they break out in all kinds of weird rashes so there's, there's it certainly is very harmful and I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't live near uh, a transmitting facility away no, no, I, I wouldn't either. There's no long-term study. They've never done any of that. So but Microwaves but, were mean, actually illegal in Russia, too, for a long period of time. Oh, were they? Oh, the microwave machines? Microwave ovens, yeah. Microwave ovens. But, yeah, it's, it's but, a, you need to use con- convection heat, like fire or, or an actual oven that's just heating the air around something. So why are a massive amount of people um, self-medicating? Is it accidental? Are they just all being stressed out at the same time? Is it their work? I would suggest they're being exposed to a massive mainstream media campaign of um, strategy attention, among I think other we know. I think we know that's the case, and people are doing what they know how to do to try and cope with it. Right, exactly. So blaming people for self-medicating, I'm not sure that's the, it, that's the a beneficial way to go. How about... Learn what you're doing is self-medicating. Realize that you are having massive anxiety 
the unease that you feel every day that you want to you want to get rid of is because of strategy of tension is because you you feel anxiety and then if they know what it is they're doing which i don't think most people do i think they've convinced themselves they're just having fun but in reality they are self-medicating when you say uh, we shouldn't blame them who's blaming them like is that the impression that you got that i was blaming them yeah because I stated, I stated, um, yeah, I stated, ex- well, I stated yeah. explicitly many, many times already in this call. It's like, well, this, this actually makes sense. You know, it's not about judging. This is actually a, it makes sense that they would do this. It's not about blaming the individual. Oh. Well, it sounds like you're also trying to make them feel bad for using the microwave oven. Me. Well, it's not about trying to make them feel bad. I mean, I'm just expressing what seems to me to be an absurdity that people would use an object to heat up their food without even questioning. It's so dangerous in so many other forms. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing. Now, some people might feel bad because they use a microwave, so they're going to internalize what I'm saying. But that doesn't mean that that's the intention of me saying it. And what's your intention of bringing up the marijuana thing? Well, the marijuana thing is another one of these things that I got sucked into. I got sucked into thinking... You're listening to another hour of Fakeologist Audio Chat on Fakeologist.com. Yeah, I got sucked into believing that marijuana is either harmless or relatively harmless and that it was uh, even medicinal, do you know what I mean? I got sucked into those beliefs and that was no one's fault but my own. And now that I can see through all of that nonsense... Now I'm I'm sharing this. I'm saying, guys, maybe we should reconsider these these beliefs about the harmlessness, relative or absolute, of things like marijuana. Especially now that I have a better idea of how many people are out there doing this all the time. I was I was almost oblivious to it, really, up until last year, up until 2017. I didn't understand how many people out there are drinking and or smoking daily, smoking weed. I mean, I didn't understand. It's like, I, so even a suggestion then to deal with the constant anxiety that our population is now feeling? Well, I, I don't have any suggestions for them because I don't really think I'm any happier person. I mean, I might be, but I don't, I'm not really sure that I am. So I'm not I'm sort of not in the in the game of telling people, here's what you should do to be happy because, you know. No, not be I happy. Get... Just deal with the anxiety they're feeling. Well, I'm why are they feeling anxiety? I mean, are they... Yeah. To a, a human rat house. I mean, if you're working in an office, in an artificially lit office, during sunlight hours with people you don't like, purely for money you're going to waste on alcohol and other poisons, then maybe maybe you're quite right, Cahan. Maybe the symptoms are the alcohol and the other poisons. Maybe the cause is how they're living their lives. If they, if they, continue to, if they choose to continue to spend 40 hours a week in an artificially lit place with people they don't like purely for money, then that's game, set, and match right there. Everything that follows is just icing on the cake. How many people can honestly say that the office that they work in, that the people who they're working with, they would have anything to do if it wasn't for money? Most people, if they're being honest, the answer is, most people are going to say, if they're being honest, they're going to say, well, no, no, I don't spend any time with these people outside of work, so the obvious answer is no. I am literally just there for money. It's like, okay, that's not necessarily a bad thing. What are you spending the money on? Well, uh, Netflix, movies, poisons, professional sport, and shit for the kids that they don't need because all the neighbours buy shit for their kids once a year when the TV tells us to do it. They even give us music, jingles. Okay, well, we can see the problem right there, can't we? 
I see what you're saying. Right. And I would add to that, you know, consider your diet also. Diet is huge because when you feel anxiety, that's directly related to your adrenal glands. So people's adrenal glands are shot from being constantly stressed, constantly, constantly. It's the one gland that's called upon daily. Watch the news, adrenal gland. Watch a scary, intense movie, adrenal gland. Watch a cooking show with a timer, adrenal gland. Get into traffic, adrenal gland. Go to work with shitty lights and people you don't like, adrenal gland. It's a constant hit to your adrenal gland. And most people, when their adrenal gland is shot, the result is anxiety. So I would say fix your diet, fix your adrenal gland, and you don't need pot anymore. You don't need to self-medicate anymore. And you would do that. How would you fix your diet? Go back to natural foods. Leave meats. I'm I'm just going to say this because there's thousands of people that could back me up. Meat, grain, and dairy add to the already acidic system that's in our body. So we have to change that to alkaline. Your adrenal gland will start to heal. You'll feel a sense of ease, a sense of contentment, and you won't need to self-medicate anymore. And one way to start that process is to cool your body down, start to eat fruit. There's really, it's I've seen it in like dozens of people now. Once they go more natural, high fruit diet, all their anxiety, along with a host of other symptoms, start to disappear. And their need to self-medicate diminishes over time to almost nothing it seems to me like changing our diet is one of the most difficult things most of us will ever try to do because we're creatures of habit we're creatures of routine and you know the food that we eat is a big part of that routine and so in my life in in the, in the people that i know directly i can't really think of too many examples of people who've made lasting positive changes to their diet most of the people who i know and i'm 30 years old now if they were in good condition in school, they're fat now. If they were fat in school, they're huge now. It's, it generally goes one way in, uh, in my experience, and uh, I'm sure there are some exceptions. I mean, I'm one. I'm, I'm, I'm lighter now than I was three years ago. Significantly I noticed lighter. there, John, like when I woke up to all this kind of stuff and started looking at, at these kind of things, I made massive changes at the time. This is um, 2015. So I stopped uh, eating a lot of processed foods. I cut out all, you know, um, sugary sweets, ice cream, lollies, chocolates, all that stuff. I just gave it. I just didn't interest me. I'm like, this, this is. I know this is bad for me. Um, so I just stuck to to meat, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables. I stopped using a microwave, and that was probably the best I'd ever felt in my life. And I, and I kept that up for a long time. But but habits do creep back in after a while. And I still I still avoid a lot of bad stuff, but I don't always seek out uh, the best good stuff uh, like I used to. So yeah, it's certainly yeah, so something that probably even motivated by fear for a short period of time. I was able to keep it up for about 18 months. Thing, you're you're I, probably one of the more successful examples then. If what you're saying is the case, then you're probably successful examples of someone who has made genuine positive changes to their diet, right? And so it does. But it was interesting that my motivation was out of fear of being poisoned, like like all the things in the world were intentionally being bad for me. So I'm going to stick to just what I know is natural, you know. Yeah, well, the, going going back just to the point that I was making is we can sit here and say people should do this or they shouldn't do that, whereas I don't really spend too much time saying people should or shouldn't do this because I know full well it doesn't matter what I say. It's difficult enough for me to follow my own advice. So what would make me think that telling other people 
they should or shouldn't do things is uh, is is worth the ten or fifteen seconds it takes to say they should or shouldn't do this. If if I can't even stick to my own conception of of what is healthy, then why say that people should do this or should do that? Like, what does it ultimately achieve, really? <laughs> it makes you feel superior for a short period of time. Yeah, uh, when, yeah. when people aren't generally good at taking their own advice. And it's food is culturally related, so they're actually insulted when you suggest a change. They're like, wait a minute, you know, my grandparents ate this, my parents ate this, I ate this. You telling me I'm wrong? Yeah, it's it's, so it's that really issue. depends it's a on complete, the context you're in, though. But um, yeah. I think previous generations, like my grandparents, would have eaten was probably a lot healthier because it was just uh, very basic food food elements and put together put together, you know, in in the kitchen. Whereas I think these days, so many things uh, rely on you know a, a sauce mix or sort of a half assembled. Um, ingredient that comes out of a, a box that's been sitting on the shelf for several months. And that certainly well, doesn't seem like something that well, would be logical to put in your body. That's a very good point. Humans now think it's totally normal to eat food in boxes, right? That's, that is a totally normal thing to the average human in 2017 to eat food that's being sitting in a box for how long? They don't know how long it's been sitting there. So long as they eat it before the date that's on the box, that's all that matters. For all they know, that food's been there for five years. Right? That doesn't matter. It's totally normal now for a human to eat food out of a box. When you take a step back and think about that for a moment, just think about that. Hold on. Let me think about this. Humans who know full well <laughs> that food grows from the ground or it is from animals who eat food that grows from the ground, those humans now think it, don't even think about the fact that they're literally eating food out of boxes, okay? No different to a common, uh, common house cat or a common uh, pet dog. They're literally eating food out of boxes without even thinking about it. And it's like... That, that human that does that, nothing that I say to it about 9-11 or about ancient history or about human evolution or spinning ball, nothing I say, th- this person eats food out of a fucking box. What, what can I possibly say to this person that's, that's going to help them? <laughs> <laughs> they, they eat food. These are full-grown adults, many of them who hold down full-time employment, right? These, these are, and they just these haven't reasons. contemplated the idea of it. They have pantries full of food in boxes. Right? Yeah, it's, it's pretty sad. If you look at what our ancestors ate, I know here in early America and in Europe, soups, soups with vegetables in it and very little meat. They weren't meat eaters. They didn't eat a lot of meat. They ate a lot of squash. You could grow a squash and it could last an entire year. They'd just keep it in the corner of the house under the bed. So if we look, compare our diet today to our early ancestors, you know, and I would say even our grandparents had a host of health issues because of their higher intake of meat. But if you go back like 200 years, it's all soups. Soups, vegetable soup, that's basically what everybody ate. And they you think, think it's all about a host of health issues. Um, I've heard you talk uh, before, John, about um, the idea that we're all uh, living a lot longer. Why, why is everyone so quick to assume that, oh, well, you know, food was worse back then and things were rancid and people just died from bad food? I don't think that's really the case. I mean, like from my experience, all my grandparents and their parents all lived very long, healthy lives. And they, they you know, my grandmother head off up to the butchery every day and buy her meat and buy some vegetables and go home and cook it. You know, that was the way things used to be done. Does she have people every like, day? Did your grandma have meat every day? Well, yeah. 
There weren't veg- there weren't as many vegetarians around at that time, believe me. Well, no, they had meat, but it wasn't there. It was like twenty to ten percent of their diet. It wasn't every day. And if they had it in a meal, they had it once a week, like on Sunday, a big roast or something. And maybe they used bits and pieces of the leftovers and things like that. I mean, my grandmother died of um, of ovarian cancer. My grandmother, she grew up on a farm. And they were under the idea that you had to eat a lot of meat to be able to work on the farm. But her grandmother had mostly soups. You know, things like I'm not that. saying you have to eat a lot of meat. I'm just, it's all part of a balanced diet. I mean, you, you, there's probably, uh, you probably may, maybe only need 200 grams every second day, you know, to, to maintain enough iron levels or whatever it is you, you, you get from meat. I mean, right. Well, you, you don't need iron from meat. You can get it from veggies. So you can get everything you need from fruits and veggies. You so you think humans shouldn't have yeah. to eat meat? Um, they don't need to. No, not at all. And proof of that is... If you go back and look at cookbooks from like the um, 16, 1700s, they're soups with a lot of squash and veggies in them. They didn't need to go to doctors every day. They didn't need to get medicines to. No, I don't think you necessarily medicines. need to go to a doctor every day now. I can't remember the last time I went to a doctor. I think it's pretty much all a, all a state of mind. And it's interesting no, that you're young. talking about all this. <laughs> That's why you don't go. You have to wait till There's you hit. Plenty of people younger than me who have lots of like, claim they have lots of health issues, and I think it's more their thinking than than uh, their actual health. I'd say since I woke up to all this stuff, I've probably been at the healthiest I've ever been. Well, that's good. But you have right, to listen, wait John, to your certain age. It catches up to you. Time will tell. Um, John, I know you you were ready to shoot off. Yeah, I've got to go in a second, man. Just quickly going back to what you were saying about people. Most people today are convinced that we are living longer, that humans are living longer. And uh, you can just try asking them, oh, yeah, what evidence have you seen for that? And they'll look at you like you just shot Bambi. It's like, well, we all know that we're living longer. We all know that we're living longer. Everyone knows that. We're all told from a young age that we're living so long now, thanks to the marvels of technology. And if you watch now, the news, well, there's constantly... able to be a doctor. Yeah, well, there's constantly news stories now about medical breakthroughs and scientists are just around the corner, blah, blah, blah. So people are constantly being programmed with this idea... <laughs> that we're living longer and science is helping us live longer. But if you go and try and look for the statistics yourself, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have a hard time proving that we're living longer. And I'm quite convinced that you know, most of my cohort from high school are not going to reach the age of their parents. To me, that seems very obvious, just looking at them, the way they live their lives. Yeah. But um, this is all just miles and miles beyond, uh, beyond the average person. But I'm really going. So I've really enjoyed this chat, dude. I'm glad we organised this. I'll have to do this more often. So it was good to finally get together on, on air and have a chat, and um, I certainly look forward to doing it again soon. I think uh, we could certainly cover some more of the uh, the history hoax stuff. I mean, um, uh, you know, as I said, it, always, it just takes time to warm up to these ideas, and, I mean, I'm starting to, to uh, listen to some of the stuff you've been saying and go, yeah, like, what what do I really know? So it always well, just takes time to, to sit with it and let it settle in. Uh, see, it's funny you say that because I've been thinking, I've been thinking since we last spoke about the history hoax that, you know what, maybe maybe there really was a big library 2,000 years ago in Alexandria where they stored all of the books, all of the smart books and all of the smart people were in one place 2,000 years ago and then some baddies came along and burnt the library to the ground and led to the Dark Ages and set back human progress hundreds of years. I'm, I'm starting to think that maybe that actually is true. Maybe I jumped the gun doubting that one. So... um. 
I'm probably it's not the guy to speak to anymore. It's it's becoming so obvious that it's just our our programming and everything we've been bootstrapped with that gives us this absurd idea that that makes total sense. Like we are really living in an insane world. Like um, how how many people are busy? Like you say, busy uh, you know arguing over crosshairs on the camera or the way the the sand you know the dust is on the moon when they're missing the big issue that if you actually just look closely, it's an absurdity. And, and not only that, not only the picture uh, of, of the lamb on the moon, but the concept to begin with, um, with all the stuff that could have been happening for humankind at the time, the most important thing was to uh, hop in a ship and fly to the moon. Like, the, the, you step back and think about that and go, that, what? Like, it's a cartoon. You're going you're gonna to what? <laughs> fly to the moon. Like... And people say that so nonchalantly, like it's just obviously the next step in uh, human evolution. Well, are you, uh, are you cooking with Teflon? Yeah, man. They, they developed Teflon as part of the space missions. They, um, oh, really? So what's that Teflon? How many, how many things today are space age? <laughs> what, yeah. what, the 50s? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if, if they developed Teflon as uh, part of the mission to go to the moon, then, I mean, it. Must be best stuff. Yeah, it must be good stuff. So, you know, you take care. Now, we're going to market a product, John. Well, product. I'm gonna we market, know, we um, know what example to use. My, my Skeptus Febos, which I'm selling, 100 per packet, 50 percent off if you use the voucher. There, uh, that's how I'm going to market on the front, product. on the front, on the little packaging. It's going to say "as eaten by astronauts on the way to the moon." I think it'll increase sales 500 percent. What do you reckon? I've, got a, I've actually got a um, a space cookie in a vacuum sealed bag. Um, a friend brought me back because he, he knows I was skeptical of all this stuff, so he brought me back that to show me that they did go. Look, they developed this biscuit for astronauts. So where do you, hold on, where do, you, where do you get that? I'm not sure. It must have been some sort of aeronautical aeronautical museum, I think. Imagine people who space were convinced of yeah. the moon landings, and it's like, uh, what's your evidence for that? Oh well, they brought back rocks. They they actually brought back moon dust, moon rocks. Oh well, that's uh, it's case closed, I suppose. As, you know, they, they they wouldn't just take a regular rock or dust and claim that it was from the moon. That that's the end of this uh, conversation, I suppose. You're you're not going to go prove it anytime soon, anyway. So yeah, what would I know? Anyway, mate, you take care and uh, hello to uh, goodbye to Kham and to uh, not so Freemason and Fast Fever in the chat. And um, anyway, I guess you and I can talk uh, talk again sooner. Something like that. Very nice talking to you all. Um, I'm off to have one of my nice, healthy tobacco sticks. Well, it was certainly an enjoyable call for me to be a part of. And like I said at the start, I do hope to hear more from Velocet because he clearly has some interesting things to add to all of this. It was also interesting, wasn't it, that when Kayham joined at the end, and I'm not trying to pick on her, but isn't it interesting how I can just sit there and talk about general ideas concerning society, humans, the way that things are today, and that a certain type of person can take it personally. So even though I'm speaking generally about society, there's a certain type of person, and I think this is probably the majority of people today, they will internalize what is being said personally. So for example, if I were to say that school is a retard factory, and by sending your children to school, despite knowing what school is there for, then you are responsible for what happens to the child, not the people who run the show, but you. If I make that general statement, there are a lot of people out there who are sending their children to school who will internalize that as me attacking them directly or personally, or they will feel as though what I'm saying is an attack on them. But of course it's not. They get to decide what they're doing. 
I am merely making an observation about society. And I could be wrong. But the way to prove that I'm wrong is not to get uh, aggravated or to take things personally. You can come along and have a chat and we can chat about, well, what is school really there for? Is it the right thing to send children to school? I am more than open-minded to all different perspectives. But simply listening to what I have to say or reading what I have to say and getting offended by it and taking it personally, it doesn't help you. And if I'm wrong, it doesn't help me. Because what will help me is if you can show me with logic and evidence how what I am saying, these general statements that I make, how they are wrong. Even if they're only wrong in a set specific example or with certain caveats or whatever. Okay, cool, let's discuss it. But in fact, a lot of what I say people do take personally because they know that it does apply to them and they also know that they're not going to change their behavior. And so rather than take responsibility... They will blame the powers that be, the people who run the show, as I call them, and they will get upset at anybody like myself who is pointing out what is going on. And I don't mean that as a specific criticism of Kham. We see this all the time. I've seen this so many times where people will say, what you're saying, JLB, it makes me feel bad. You're giving me bad feelings. Sometimes they'll even explicitly use these words, feelings. You know, I feel bad when I listen to what you're saying, not what you're saying is wrong, not your logic is misplaced and let me show you why. Not your evidence is lacking or there's better evidence. Let me show you none of that. No serious, intelligent conversation. Just what you're saying makes me feel bad. So I don't like you or blah, 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 blah. And again, this goes to the heart of the point that I've been making for a little while now. And that point is this. It may well be the case that the world as it is today, there are certain truths, there are certain facts there are certain realities that many people, potentially most people, are not going to benefit from hearing. It's not going to help them. At best, they'll get upset by it. They'll get offended by it. But their behavior is not going to change. The typical human does not change his mind, let alone his behavior. So hearing truths that don't necessarily accord with his behavior cannot help him. All it will do is upset him. And so those of us who want to discuss what we believe is the truth what we believe is reality, what we believe are the facts and the logic that follow from the facts and the conclusions and the implications, it may well be that for our benefit and for the benefit of the regular people, the normies as I call them, it may well be that we're better off having some kind of separation, whether that separation is a physical one, like a brick and mortar secret school, or whether it's an online one where certain online communities are kept distinct or private from those who are not ready or willing or likely to benefit from what's being discussed. And this is my view now. This is the view that I've come to, that the idea of secret societies, not secret societies as in that no one knows that they exist, secret societies as in societies where secrets are discussed, things that the regular people don't need to hear and won't benefit from hearing, those things are discussed. I think they have a place in our society based on what I've seen of the regular people and how they react when they are confronted with information such as what was discussed in this call that we have had today. And that is one reason why I will be scaling back quite significantly the time that I spend at places like Fakeologist. And then when I'm there, I'll probably be more careful to focus on certain topics and leave certain other topics for my website behind the paywall, a $5 paywall, which anyone can afford, but those who won't pay are filtering themselves out because they don't really care. And someone who doesn't care 
is much less likely to be able to grasp the concepts that are being presented. So it's only a simple filter and it's a very low barrier to entry, but it is enough to reduce, maybe not eliminate, but reduce the number of people who are exposed to ideas and to information, which cannot help them. I don't want to upset people. I'm not here to trigger people or offend them. I do understand that a lot of people, they're in certain habits. They're in certain routines. A lot of their life is in some way beyond their control. And children are a classic example. If you have two parents and one parent, for example, sees a problem with the education system, they're aware of the fact that secondary education is literally designed to retard people. You can look this up, the people who helped promote secondary education, this was no secret to them. They were saying quite clearly, we want to create a conformist group thinking bunch of fools for the benefit of society. Because if we have everybody thinking the same way, society will be more stable and yada yada. And hey, maybe, maybe these people doing this actually had a good point. Maybe we are better off if everybody is homogenized and they do all think the same way and society is more stable and the average person doesn't think anything more than, oh, I just woke up, have to go and have breakfast, go to work, pick up some stuff on the way home from work, watch TV, drink alcohol, go to bed. Maybe society is better off with a, a mass, the mass is being like that. I'm not saying that I necessarily feel that way, but I'm open-minded to it and I'm happy to discuss it. But the point is that this is what school is there for. So if a parent knows that, but the other parent uh, either doesn't know or doesn't care and prefers to send the child to school, then that first parent's hands might well be tied. He or she, usually a he, may not feel as though he has any control over the situation. So hearing me pointing out that the child is going to a retard factory, that's not going to help him, is it? It's going to cause a, potentially a sense of uh, cognitive dissonance or of uh, just general malaise. He might be better off not hearing what I have to say. And it might well be the case that the majority of people, even though they do have complete control over their own lives, they're not going to exercise that control for various reasons, whether it is to do with social reasons or psychological reasons. They're not going to exercise control over their own life. So it is easier for them to blame the people who run the show, to blame the boogeymen, to blame some external force, and just to live their life like that, to live their life blaming other people because it'd be too difficult for them to make the changes that are necessary to get rid of that cognitive dissonance. So what I'm trying to say is that I think the chat that I just had with Vela say, uh, Vela Set, as he prefers, is another example of, and what we saw with Kahan when she joined us towards the end, is another example of how this notion that, oh, the truth is for everybody, everybody cares about logic and reason and evidence, this is such an infantile, juvenile, naive take on how the world is that I'm not embarrassed that I used to have that opinion, but I do feel better knowing that now I can look back and think, well, that was my naive view. I'm still open-minded to it. I could, I could open up these curtains tomorrow and it could be a different world where people are out thinking for themselves and changing their opinions based on new evidence. And, you know, who knows what the future holds? But as things stand today, as things are right now, the notion that the truth is even good for everybody is, I now think, probably a very misguided opinion. If you disagree, I'm all ears, my friends, all ears. Leave your comments in the comments section below and we'll get a discussion going and we'll see what happens. 
but uh, it's going to take some evidence and it's going to take some logic. You're going to have to show me how or why the truth benefits everyone when we see time and time again that when simple claims, simple statements, simple logic, obvious evidence, when this is presented to people, they feel bad and they'll tell you they feel bad and they're more worried about how they feel than the facts of the matter. That's the evidence that we've got. I've just shown you another example. So you show me your evidence that the truth is for everyone or that the truth benefits everyone or that logic and reason help everyone. You show me your evidence and I'll be more than happy to inspect it. We'll leave it there. A big thanks again to Velocet for the chat. Really enjoyed it. And hopefully we can do that again sometime soon. But on the 12th of January, 2018, John the Bond signing off. And until next time, you guys take care of yourselves.